Welcome to Sacred Realms. It's a great day in Hyrule, y'all. Welcome to Sacred Realms, a Zelda retrospective podcast. I'm your host, Lyndon Willoughby, joined as always by my co-host, Matt Willoughby, uh, coming off the end of a very, very busy Zelda-tastic week. It, it, yeah, yeah, it has been hella, hella uh, Zelda-tastic. I, sorry, Lyndon, I am so distracted. This wordle is kicking my butt, and then your wife texted us pictures where we just look horrible. In both of them? Yeah, no, they're all bad. Oh man. They're all horrible. Jeez. Yeah, well, well. Well, that's why you ask to check every time after. Like, this one doesn't even have me in it. It's just my arm that is cut <laughs> off. Like, what is this? In fairness, your arm looks better than my face does. <laughs> <laughs> These behind-the-scene pictures will never see the light of day outside of our uh, family chat where we're just uh, roasting them. So uh, that that's where they will live forever yeah, there you go, there you until go. they die a horrible death, hopefully. Man. okay. Um, well, good. That was fun. Uh, <laughs> that was the nice, like, confidence boost that I needed going into a new episode of Pod. Well, Lyndon, we're not we're not facemen when it comes to Pod. We're we're voicemen. Podcasting is notably not a visual medium, and, and for this, I am thankful. Yes, we are very thankful that it, it only requires uh, mellifluous and melodious tones. That is literally all that it requires. Uh, <laughs> anyway, as we were saying, it was a it was a big old Zelda tastic week. Um, a lot of really interesting stuff going on. Max, I, I and and uh, hi everyone. Max is back again. By the way, our guest of the evening, Max Nichols. Yes. Yay! Yay! Hi. Uh, <laughs> it's him. He's back. Woo! Cue, cue Voldemort meme. He's back. Um, so, Max, I know that you're you're avoiding Tears of the Kingdom spoilers like the plague. I know that you're very, very invested in not being spoiled on anything whatsoever. Um, and since we recorded our last episode, uh, we got a big old bomb of Tears of the Kingdom info dropped right on the collective internet um, like a mushroom cloud. And I would assume that like a mushroom cloud, it's been very difficult for you to uh, to not look at. So my wife literally burst in and woke me up and was like, I had to wake you up before you could look at your phone. Don't look at the internet today. And I was I, I uh I heeded her advice. I did not look. That was that, a, that was a good spouse. <laughs> that is a good spousal move. That was yeah. wise. Has anything has anything sneaked through yet? I've seen some uh, a piece of concept art that was apparently gotcha. Released. I don't know if it was actually part of that that video or uh, was it uh, char- character concept? It was a art? piece of character concept art for a character that I I was not aware was in the game, so it was slightly unfortunate, but that's okay. Well, cool. Uh, I, so I will say, Max, you know, obviously, uh, without talking specifically about anything that we've seen, um, I know that Matt's in my hype level uh, has only been ratcheted up to unfathomable new heights um, this past week. the The trailer that they showed was. Um, uh, in, in terms of tone was very similar to the final Breath of the Wild trailer before that game came mm. out. And that's one of the that's one of the all time great trailers. The so. trailer where they they really made Breath of the Wild look like an extremely cutscene heavy game. Uh, yeah, that one. <laughs> basically, <laughs> basically the trailer where it was all the memories strung together yep. in a trailer. <laughs> 
Yeah, Here's just- every cutscene you'll get, and there will be no more. <laughs> exactly. <laughs> Enjoy. Oh man! But one of the one of the best trailer soundtracks of all time was that Breath of the Wild final that, trailer. That's true. Absolutely. That's and then it true. took them. And then it took them like a year and a half to release it for people to listen to. So. <laughs> <laughs> which you know whatever uh but anyway so yeah fun times out there on the internet right now man if, if you were like max and you're trying to avoid tears of the kingdom spoilers then woe betide you because they are um man they they out there it's they are really out there right now i, I i'm treading a very very thin tightrope these days you know appearing on zelda podcasts active in two zelda discords posting and maintaining hyrule interviews uh, but also trying to see exactly zero of <laughs> content from Thought K. Um, it's, a, it's a hard combo. Well, you're less than a month out, so <laughs> you have you have far fewer days before you than you have behind you, so take heart. Um, but we are not here to talk about Tears of the Kingdom. We are here to talk about A Link Between Worlds. It is the sequel to the Max Nichols Desert Palace episode. <laughs> We're here to talk about not the Desert Palace. It's going to be another very fun one. And I know I, I mentioned something about this in the Discord earlier, but uh, just thought it was worth mentioning here again at the top of the show that we did it, guys. We managed to get Max back for another vertical dungeon. So yippee, he has a type. <laughs> uh, he definitely has a type. <laughs> I never realized how much I was like intrigued by vertical dungeons until I appeared on uh, until every guest episode I ever appeared on was a vertical dungeon. Uh. <laughs> <laughs> well, de- de- Desert Palace was notably not a vertical dungeon, so there you go. You, you can call that your diversity. Fair. Although I picked uh, Dark Palace first, which had multi-floor puzzles, so I tried. Well, that's fair. That's a good point. <laughs> But uh, anyway, yeah, big old uh, big old dungeon to talk about this week. Um, lots of fun stuff going on here. Uh, I do want to mention real quick, Matt, before we get into the housekeeping, as a follow-up, a few days late, we did finally manage to get the voting poll for Season 9 up. Um, uh, the schedule last week, kind of going through some twists and turns, really threw me off there. And you and the Season 8 schedule are just having a really hard time. Season 8 and I are having a difficult time, and it's mostly just because, like, one, uh, you know, work has just cranked up to, like, an unbelievable level of, like, stuff that I'm having a very, very good time doing. Like, I'm I'm freaking loving my job, but there's just a lot of job to, happening right now. So, yeah. like, um, so there's that. And then also, you know, Tears of the Kingdom coming up. Like, I'm, I'm constantly just thinking about and excited about that. And uh, elsewhere in the pop culture world, we've got, like, the... Uh, for a few weeks there, we had the triple threat of Bad Batch, Mando, and Picard all happening at one time. Yeah. Then uh, Bad Batch wound down, and now it's just Mando and Picard, but even that's enough right there. I mean, yeah. there's a lot going well, on. Well, this is the last week of both of those either. Uh, also? There we go. Yeah. Both of those also. Um, so Forever for Picard. Uh, this is the, the, the last time we will ever see... Patrick Stewart portray Jean-Luc Picard on our TV screens. I make know. me sad. It's sad. But you know what? Uh, there was a period of time where we thought we would never get it again. And That's here true. we are. That's true. You're right. You know a, what? It was grateful, fun, it was, grateful for what we have. It was a fun treat. Absolutely. But yeah, all that is to say the poll finally went up. And uh, yeah, we made some uh, we made some changes to the arrangement of things. Um, I know in the last episode we said that it was going to be Minish Cap, Phantom Hourglass, and then a combo Oracle's season. 
And then, you know, after some discussion within the Discord, um, I definitely have kind of come around on thinking that the Oracles probably should just be separate seasons, especially since we're doing back-to-back top-downs and are going to have to do that again before this is all said and done. Um, just makes sense. So yeah. that poll is up right now. It turned out to be a completely moot point because it's Minish Cap and Phantom Hourglass in a dead heat at the moment. Yeah, they're getting real close. Uh, there are 16 of our patrons that have not yet voted as of the recording of this podcast on the 17th of April. So if you are one of those 16 folks and you're listening to the episode, give a, give the Patreon a login and go give it a vote. Uh, also, we posted a new Discord link at the very top and pinned it to the top. So if you're not in the Discord there, you can more easily find your way to it because i was told it was uh obtuse to find mm-hmm. it the way to the discord channel so uh sorry about that but anyway there you go go do the that, thing Matt. and yeah if you're not a patron and if you have um you know very strong feelings about whether or not you'd like to see minish cap uh played before phantom hourglass or vice versa then you know any any pledge level on the patreon can vote in that poll uh cheapest is three dollars so before you jump into the uh, housekeeping I, have, I, <laughs> I just have like a fun anecdote about Hyrule interviews I wanted to share. Absolutely. Uh, please. I recently, a couple days ago, had a, a quote go like super viral compared to my normal stuff. I got like 8,000 likes. Um, Whoa. Good and, for you. you know, normally I get yeah. like 20 or something. Um, but the quote that went viral was about the Zelda cartoon from the 80s. I don't know if the two of you have seen it. Um, I have not. My the extent of my knowledge about that show can be summed up in the well, excuse me, princess <laughs> meme. So the, the the cartoon was made when only Zelda one had been released in North America, uh, and the quote is from a woman named Eve Forward, um, who is the younger sister of the main writer, uh, a guy named Bob Forward, and in her in this okay. quote. Basically, she revealed that she was only 16 or 17 when she wrote some of the episodes for the Zelda cartoon uh, that she had did not have a Nintendo and rented it one just to play Zelda one, but didn't get very far. And so she took most of her inspiration from Dungeons and Dragons, uh, which she apparently played regularly, uh, which is kind of unusual for, you know, a teenage girl in the 80s. Uh, right. So ultimately, the you know the takeaway here is that a bunch of the Zelda cartoon was written by a D and D player, a teenage girl in the eighties. Which I just there's like so many elements to that quote that <laughs> uh, are interesting or hilarious to me. Um, so I was pleased. Yeah, in my in my head, it's now uh, in my head, it's now a, a Stranger Things character who was writing this <laughs> uh, this Zelda show, which is really cool. Uh, no, that that is really interesting. So. I have never – look, here's the deal with that show. Is it the kind of thing that there's actually some, like, fun and enjoyment to be had with, or is it one of those things where, you like, you watch it for the lulls? Uh, you mostly watch it for the lulls. Like, it's an 80s okay. cartoon named at kids. Like, it's like He-Man yeah, or yeah. something slightly better than He-Man maybe. Uh, it's, you know, it's in a curiosity only. Well, with the uh, with the amount of buku bucks that Mario is currently making at the global box office, it may only be a matter of time before <laughs> Zelda comes back to our screens in some way, shape or form. And by God, I hope that it doesn't come in the form of an Illumination Studios movie. Um, I think I, I have not seen Mario yet. I haven't seen it yet. I'm really excited to see it. I am led to believe that it is of like a very, you know, callback heavy light on plot 
high on, you know, just like, uh, you know, kind of like kind of a junk food movie experience, yeah. you know, um, which is fine. That's all I need from Mario. I don't need anything besides that. That is enough for me to go and have a good time with it as long as it's like competently done and as long as it's you know fun to look at and it seems like it is it seems like the art style is gorgeous and everything and you know if i can if if all it is is just me being the leo meme in the theater for two hours just pointing at the screen then <laughs> by leo you mean leonardo dicaprio yeah, from uh, once upon a time in hollywood yeah, yeah exactly like if that's all it is then that's cool that's all i really need out of it and uh you know um I'll have fun with it just as much as like my friends, three and four year old kids will, you know, it's fine. Yeah. Um, I need, I need more than that from Zelda. Yeah. I would not yeah, trust that, the mad uh, illumination with Zelda. And I, you know, I only barely trust them with Mario. So yeah, we'll see how it goes. I mean, Nintendo has like a whole, what's the word I'm looking for? Like a uh, brand for that. They registered a few years ago for like Nintendo movies. And they like, they kind of made a, subdivision of their company that's like nintendo films and like they definitely seem like they're gearing up for this to be a thing um yeah you know there's well i think they want them to be disney 2.0 uh well i mean mario's making disney money right now yep. so there you go they, they should be happy accurate. <laughs> um but i guess uh, yeah i mean i guess we'll see have you seen the mario movie yet max not yet um i'm still mostly avoiding theaters, but I will definitely see it as soon as it's streamable anywhere. Maybe, maybe after we talk about it, Matt, maybe we should do just like a bonus episode at some point. We absolutely have to do a bonus episode about the Mario movie. We're committing to it right now. I feel like that would actually be fun. And I don't know when we're actually going to be able to do that because we're about to launch into like the biggest Zelda event of the last half decade plus. Right. So it's like, I don't really unwise for us to commit to Look, that, but we have, a little bit less than a month between now and then. So there's time. Okay. We have time. All right. All right. We'll find a way to make it happen. We we have one week between this season ending and Tears of the Kingdom coming out. We need to fill that week. There's an episode that week, though. There's no gap in episodes. Oh, I thought there was still no, a gap. No. Oh, OK. No, there's, there's, no not, there's not a gap anymore. But that's fine. We can talk about it. We can figure something out. We'll brainstorm it. <laughs> OK. Anyway, we need to get into housekeeping and get into talking about this episode. But yes, we'll we'll talk about it. Didn't mean to get anyone too excited there. And maybe you don't even care at all, but I'm kind of excited about it now. All righty. Um, OK, so like I said, let's go ahead and get into a little bit of housekeeping and then jump right into this episode. If you didn't know, Sacred Realms is a weekly reexamination of The Legend of Zelda one little slice at a time. Sacred Realms drops every Wednesday and is available on all major podcast networks. Every week we play a new section of a Zelda game and then we sit down here to talk and to drop our hot takes. If that sounds fun to you, please head over to Apple Podcasts, hit that subscribe button and be sure to leave us a review. Five-star reviews are greatly appreciated, and they have a chance to get a shout-out here on the show. If you want more Sacred Realms in your life, you can head over to patreon.com slash sacredrealmspod and get access to our Discord channel, listener mail, vote on what game we play next, which you can currently do and will be able to do for the next week from the time you're listening to this episode, and much more. 
Additionally, one of the benefits that Master Sword patrons and above get is that we read their names every week here on the show. Those legendary individuals are Shepherd Street, Matthew, Chris, Daniel, Fallout 907, Kelso, Tiffany the Star, Daxel, Patrice, Stephanie, Darknuck, Brian, George, Mike, Dylan, Lenny, Melanie, Kolku, Aiden, Rowan, Josh, Nick, Dante, Gep, Brittany, Davey, Haru the Mighty, Derek, Albert, Mark, Andy, Cameron, Ben, Daniel, Nick D underscore TV, Travis, Christian, Jonathan, Hyrule Interviews, a.k.a. Viral Tweeter, Max Nichols, Garrett, <laughs> Andrew. You're the most legendary of individuals. I would uh, I would explore a eight-story frozen wasteland dungeon with all of you anytime. Yes, accurate. There you go. But without further ado, let's talk about what we played this week. We do that every week in the Sacred Realms Rundown, which is a six-part analysis of what we played this week and the feelings that it made us feel. Today, we are covering A Link Between Worlds, Chapter 9. Part 1 of the Sacred Realms Rundown is, as always, the plot recap, this week, read by Matt. Take it away, Matt. As we land back in low rule from the Chamber of Sages, we head off to find the route to the second-to-last sage we must collect. There are two options, one in the northern frozen wastes of low rule's Death Mountain, and the other in the waters of low rule's version of Lake Hylia. For reasons relating to the schedule that some bozo created, we head to the northeast of low rule to begin our hunt for the path to the Ice Palace of Death Mountain. We head back to Hyrule and use Irene's broom to make our way to the Tower of Hera and find a handy dimensional rift that brings us back to Low Rule. This icy version of the Mountain of Death is absolutely chock full of beefy boys who throw freezing ice balls and try to smash us to pieces at every turn. Also, Low Rule's version of the Tower of Hera is instead a large tower called the Treacherous Tower. This tower is manned by an odd humanoid with bat-like wings that charges us a few hundred rupees to enter her live combat arena. After a few trips through the treacherous tower, we continue on our way towards the far eastern section of Death Mountain, but find the way impassable on the low rule side. So we head back to Hyrule and head east over the bridge to an area populated with the most dangerous enemy we have faced on our journey yet. The fire-breathing Lionel fiercely guards its territory from all invaders, and we are no exception to this rule. These fierce creatures try to bar our path to the bottom of the mountain, but are no match for our handy fire rod. As we continue down, we enter into the mountain itself to find the path forward on blocks of floating stone that move hither and yon. Using some precise timing, we make it to the bottom of the mountain to find Rosso's ore mine. While the mine is deserted, there is a dimensional rift here that finally takes us to the eastern slope of Low Rule's version of Death Mountain. Hilda contacts us telepathically again to warn us of the immense danger of this place, and of the ice ruins in particular. But seeing as this is the next location of the painting, we press onward. The path up to the summit is a mirror image of the fiery caves we traversed in Hyrule. These caves are as cold as death, and the chill permeates to our bones as we climb aboard floating ice pillars to ascend this chasm. Along the way, we are accosted by living statues of, of ice, called Ice Gimos. The fire rod makes short work of these pests, and we continue upward to the summit of Death Mountain. Upon summiting the mountain, we find the ice ruins blocked by another ice gimo, but melt it with the fire rod and head inside. 
The ice ruins are somehow even more cold than the mountain itself, and the chill radiates outwards from this place as if it would freeze the entire world. The chill creeps deeper than flesh, and the malice of that freezing wind is almost palpable. The path forward is blocked by huge ice blocks, and the floor is littered with frozen stalagmites. The fire rod is our best friend and will continue to be so throughout these ruins as we melt the pesky blocks of ice in our way. On a raised platform in the middle of the room is an odd statue with its tongue sticking out. We pull the statue's tongue like a lever and watch as the two floor panels behind us begin moving in opposite directions, one up and one down, like a rotating elevator. We hop on the downward side of this pair and head into the depths of the ruins to see what we can see. The whole ruin is built over Death Mountain's caldera as if to stifle the heat and the lava from rising to the surface. The chasm is wide open all the way to the magma below, and no floor would stop our fall if we took a wrong step. There are six floors in this ruin, and it is interlaced with the floating ice pillars that carried us to the top of the mountain. Also, there are frozen paths and more of the tongue statues scattered around, but none of these paths seem to connect us to anything of value, and it seems that we will have to create connections and move around pieces of flooring to form cohesive walkways around the ruin. We set about looking for ways to move around the walkways and create new ones right away. Some switches bring up new ice pillars for us to carefully traverse, while other switches and levers move huge sections of floor into new positions around the ruins. Along the way, we have to use the fire rod regularly to melt obstacles in our path, and we have to throw bombs to hit faraway switches. While exploring, we find a hugely useful item called the Stamina Scroll, which increases our available stamina for item usage. In all of our exploration, we have yet to find the key to unlock the boss door. So after looking on our map with the handy compass, we hop back in the elevator for a ride. At the very bottom of the elevator is a chest containing the key. So we head back up to finish out the construction of the needed walkway to the boss chamber, which is located on the very bottom of this icy ruin. After a long time spent exploring every nook and cranny of this ruin, lighting torches and crossing bottomless chasms with the utmost care, we finally construct a singular path to the boss's door, and head to the bottom floor to defeat the monster and nab our sage. The boss room is a large octagonal arena with a giant hole in the middle that has an unobstructed view of the volcano's caldera below. As we take in the sights, a blob of black writhing tentacles springs up from the depths. And as it hops into battle over the arena, it encases itself in a huge glacier and surrounds itself with glowing orbs. It starts hovering around the edges of the arena and shoots the glowing orbs at us, but none of them hit. As we head towards the glacier to hit it with the fire rod, we see a bright flash of light emanate from the glowing orbs, and in the moment of stunned confusion, we are flash-frozen by the orbs as they freeze the space between them. Knowing the boss's trick now, we head... We start running around the arena, chasing the boss while avoiding the area between its flash-freezing orbs. The fire rod melts the glacier slowly, but once the protective ice is gone... Darkstair is vulnerable to our sword and other weapons. The fully upgraded Master Sword does massive damage, and after only a few hits, the boss is back in its ice shield. It summons another set of flash-freezing crystals and starts moving even faster around the arena. 
We now have to avoid two sets of the freezing crystals that flash freeze huge areas of the arena, avoid the giant hole in the middle, and get close enough to the boss to melt his glacier, all without falling off the edge. But we thread this needle successfully, and after a few more damage phases, Darkstare is no more. It explodes like all the bosses before it, and the path is opened to our penultimate sage. The portrait contains Rosso, our ore-mining friend who gave us the power gauntlets so long ago. We free him and head to the Chamber of Sages for our customary powwow. He tells us that he has known for a long time that he is a sage, but never really felt it important enough to tell anyone, as it didn't affect his passion for mining ore. Like all the other sages before him, he encourages us to rescue the final sage as quickly as possible, so this whole ordeal can come to an end. We head back to Low Rule and set our sights south, towards the lake, and our final sage. Boop. Boop. Well done as always, Matt. I always do my best work. <laughs> On the spot. <laughs> Stunning On performance. Time. <laughs> On time. You've taken Every my time. breath away. <laughs> <laughs> uh, delayed recording of the plot recap. I Hey, now they all know. Yeah, well, yeah, I brought that on myself. Okay, that's okay. That's okay. We love you anyway, Matt. I appreciate I'm, that. I'm sure it's fantastic. I mean, it will be. If it's terrible, then I'm sorry. This, this was all for nothing. I don't know that it's ever been terrible. I don't think it's ever been it's terrible. It's been not great a couple of times. That that, fir- that first one really had... Uh, that, we can't even really call yeah, that a plot recap. Yeah, that was a plot yeah. ramble. It was beautiful. I loved it. Was, it. it. It was certainly a thing. It was All a right. thing that happened. <laughs> Let's get into part two, which is our takes where we talk about this section of the game and how it made us feel. All right, Max, I'm going to bounce it over to you. And uh, the reason that I'm going to do that is because I feel like we <clears throat> have had varying levels of fun getting to dungeons in this game so far, especially in the back mm-hmm. half. Some of them have have got some very fun uh, hoops that you have to jump through and some have next to none. Um, in order to get to the ice ruins, you really have got to do some traversal. Um, it, it's it's definitely a, a pretty long experience. Um, I personally enjoyed it quite a lot, but I wanted to bounce it over to you first to kind of get your feelings uh, on on that whole Death Mountain of High Rule and then Death Mountain of Low Rule situation. Yeah, well, it's memorable. When I started this game again for this replay, some of the few things that I really remembered were the traversal of these caves in Death Mountain on both in both worlds. Um, was it your brother who uh, described the game as a Zelda platformer? Yeah, that was Jackson. Yeah, I mean, I don't know if I necessarily agree with that overall, but in this section of the game, this is where it's a platformer. Uh, (laughs) More than any other, there's like tense timing, um, judging distances, judging timing of jumps or falls. Like, that's platforming gameplay. Um, And uh, it's also where we see some of the most like what's, what's the word we're looking for like uh expressive depth as in the 3d depth uh in the game like we just see the, the furthest distances where you need to ju- actually try to judge distance for something that's like many stories below you for real-time gameplay reasons um this is one of the few areas in the game where i actually turned on 3d not just out of curiosity but because it was going to help me time my jumps better 
to be able to see the yeah. depth, which was definitely a goal they had in this game. Like they wanted you to do that. They wanted you to feel like the 3D and the ability to perceive depth mattered. Um, and this is one of the places they really succeeded at that. Um, yeah. Yeah, no, I, I totally agree. And you're absolutely right. A lot of this, I mean, this is platforming in the purest definition of the word. Um, I personally found myself having a really good time with mostly all of this. And um, there are a few different reasons for that. One of them is that it's just nice to be doing something different, right? Mm-hmm. Um, you know, we've kind of said over the last few weeks that the sections between dungeons were starting to get a little like, you know, it's not that we weren't having fun anymore. It's just that we kind of felt like, we had discovered all of the world that there really was to find. And so it was all feeling pretty small, you know, and a little bit more familiar than it needs to be for me to be having an absolute blast moment to moment playing a Zelda game. And, uh, and so this was really fun just because you, you're in a completely new area, um, both in High Rules Death Mountain, and then once you make it through to Low Rules Death Mountain, you're in an area that you have previously um, never been able to access. Like the the High Rule part of Death Mountain, you could have explored all of this up until now if you had wanted to and if you had felt just kind of really adventurous, but uh, Low Rule definitely not. Um, I enjoyed the symmetry that it has, like the kind of the descent that you have from the high rule side and then the reascent that you have on the low rule side. I, I thought that that was like a really interesting dynamic. And I also really love just how much stuff there is to find in both of these, uh, in both versions of the cave. Um, like there's, you know, there's the main path that is taking you from the top of the mountain down and then f- down back up to the ice ruins. But there's a lot of stuff branching off of that. You know, there's like a bottle quest that's tied up in this. Um, there's, uh, there's a Mai Mai. There's, I'm sorry, there's a what? So the bottle that you, uh, the bottle that you have to deliver to the guy, it has the letter in it. And then he wants lawn lawn milk. I, I, How many bottles do you have right now? Four. Yeah. Are there five available in this game? No, there's only four. But one of them is that you have to deliver Lon Lon milk to. I thought you, it was this guy. You did up it, on uh, the way earlier in the season, Matt. Oh, did yeah. I? Oh, okay, okay, okay. Never mind. Please continue. <laughs> <laughs> um, but it is weird because I had that thought too when I was actually in like the the fire side, that like the high rule side. When I found that guy, I was thinking like, I know I did this. I don't remember having been on these platforms anytime before now, but like clearly I did, you know, right. Uh, just didn't really stick with me, but yeah, there's a bottle tied up in all this. My, my um, heart piece, you know, um, a few big caches of rupees. Like there's, there's a lot of stuff to kind of find in here and it takes a good amount of time to actually do all that exploration because you're gated by the speed of the platforms, you know? Mm-hmm. Yeah. No, I I really liked this. Um, I really liked this section also. Um, I I had explored a bit around the high rule side, but not a lot. Mostly because the Lynels scared me away uh, early on in the game. Um, getting into the low rule side and doing the the they're like little what are they? I don't know what to call them. We're gonna have to call them something throughout the rest. They're like little beams like uh oh, those like I, the moving ice beams yeah, yeah the the moving ice beams like that was a really cool um little mechanic that was used to maneuver around i, I liked that a lot um and it being able you being able to take different paths in both sections like you said Lyndon, was really cool and being incentivized to do that by finding 
um, useful things. Like I found enough my mys to go upgrade two more things during my traversal throughout this section. Yeah. Right. Like it was, it was huge. It was really great. And, um, I like being, I like being incentivized to explore. And part of the incentive in this game for the exploration is something that is common among top down Zeldas is you exit a cave and you look to your right or below and there's whole there's doors there, but you can't access them from the outside. So, you know that if you go back in and you just like do some due diligence and investigation inside, you should find a path that leads to one of those doors. Yeah. And that is something that is harder to do in some ways than a 3d game with just the space that you have trying to have visual cues to incentivize the player to go do more exploring. Mm -hmm. Um, and it works really well here. And I think another good example of that is like telltale heights. And, um, a lot of the other mountainous regions and top downs are full of these kinds of, um, visual cues to go do more exploration and go off the beaten path. That's I'm really, too. <laughs> no, no, nope. That doesn't, doesn't count, Max. It doesn't nope, count. That incentivizes no one to do anything but die. It ac- it actually does count, but I still have like nightmares. So um, yeah, yeah, PTSD. <laughs> yeah, but no, I, like I'm really glad that you brought this up, Matt, because um, I feel like we do talk a lot about the ways that we think 3D Zeldas have a lot of strengths of exploration, and you really, um, you really isolated one thing that the top downs do extraordinarily well. Um, and and that's not to say this doesn't happen in like non mountainous regions of these overworlds, because it does, just not quite to the same extent. Uh, mountainous regions of top down games definitely have this great way of like showing you basically what you're working with. And then you have to go figure it out yourself. Um, and that's a really good time. Yeah. I almost always enjoy that. And it, it pays off really well here. It's done very well here. Mm-hmm. There's, yeah, it, it's, it's great. There's one thing that um, 2D Zelda games do well, uh, kind of by their very nature, that is, that is interesting and hard to really nail down. But basically, when you're in a 3D game, you can look at a landmark far in the distance. You see a mountain. Um, or you see a cave, and, and maybe you're like hundreds of meters away, uh, but you can kind of judge distances, you can kind of judge spatial relationships, um, you have access to a much broader set of information around you about the world, as long as your sightline isn't blocked. Um, and then top-down games, you can only ever see one screen's worth of stuff. Um, like, your, your ability to see distances is much lower. Um, and in a way, it lets them do this thing where, like, every time you change screens, um, there's a there's a sort of like tension and then surprise uh, when you get to a new screen. Um, and for whatever reason, that works really well with this kind of mountainous, like traveling through caves sort of exploration that you see in these mountain areas. Uh, I don't know if I have a better <laughs> better explanation for why it works than that, but. It works well. well. I think it's just I think it's just because of the the verticality of these areas, right? I feel like in the rest of the overworld of a top-down Zelda game, you generally have got two levels of verticality. You've got ground level and then usually maybe something right above that, you know? Um, whereas with these mountain sections, you can have three or four on a screen at any given time, right? Especially in these instances where you've got like doors leading to outcroppings that are midway up the rock face, you know? Um, there's just more going on. And that's a, that's a great call out about the tension of this experience, Max, because 
this is something that I feel almost all the time, especially when I don't have what door goes where memorized in a game. Because mm-hmm. uh, I'm sitting here saying like, okay, I see I see a door leading to an outcropping up here. And let's say there's a piece of heart on that outcropping. I want that piece of heart. Now, do I go in this door that I'm right next to and spend some time trying to find it in there? Or do I go off to another screen, which is further away distance-wise from the thing that I'm trying to get to, but maybe the right door for it is over there, you know? And it kind of creates this weird push and pull during exploration of, um, you know, just like – especially for someone who's like, I'm trying to, you know, I'm trying to get this goal and I don't want to waste too much time getting to it. You know, I don't want to make a wrong decision. Um, And I'm I'm making it sound not fun, I think. But I, but it, but it, it works. It's one of those things that I think is fun about these sections of top-down Zelda. I, on the other hand, love making the wrong decision, and this is something that I think is instilled in me as a huge open-world RPG player. And that is, I tried to find the path that leads to uh, the end goal, and then I avoid it. Like I go the opposite direction almost 100% of the time until I have explored and found almost everything that I can. That's my dungeon strategy. Yeah, Yeah. that's but that's what I do for so many things. And um, that just comes from, uh, you know, hundreds and hundreds of hours playing mostly, you know, open world exploration RPGs. Um, I recently restarted playing The Witcher 3 because I just couldn't put it off anymore. Um, I was just too hooked by the... um, 4k upgrade that recently came out and is it man good? oh my gosh dude i cannot express to you how incredible this game looks with ray tracing on and photo mode and just like all the oh man it's it's amazing yes go play it if you have not played witcher 3 with the 4k upgrade if you have a 4k capable device like an xbox one x or a high level pc with a screen that can really capture the beauty of it it is probably the most breathtakingly beautiful game i've ever played it's a well there you go i'll show it to you when you come over on thursday it is it really is it's a it's a marvel of modern game design in my opinion never played it my favorite part (laughs) sorry this is totally tangent but my favorite part about witcher 3 Uh, Like the thing that sticks out the most in my memories of it is like standing at dusk with the wind blowing in kind of just one of the opening zones. Um, And like just the amount of secondary like animation that all the trees have, and like everything feels like it's reacting to the wind. Like you kind of feel like you're cold because it feels like a cold area in the same way that like a windy fall day is cold. Um, And it just kind of gets that, that like, yeah, Totally agree. experience of all that. It it, it has, it is, has a very grounded sense of place. Perfect. Yeah, totally agree. Well, y'all are selling it real hard right now. Maybe I'll play it before the next generation of consoles comes out. (laughs) (laughs) But back to death mountain. Um, no, this is not a Witcher podcast. This is not a a Witcher podcast. podcast. Although I feel like this podcast pretty frequently is like secretly lots of other different types of podcasts. That is absolutely (laughs) accurate. Yeah. It it rambles. A quick question for you two. Yes. When you're exploring these mountainous areas in a link between worlds, do they feel like a dungeon or not? Hmm. I would have to say, I don't necessarily think they feel like a dungeon. Um, it just feels like a much more focused version of exploration. 
but I see your question makes me see where you're going with it. And I can see how you could make the argument that it is dungeon esque um, with the mechanics of traversal and the traps and the enemies that are around. Like I definitely see how it could feel dungeon esque. I will say that previously I, I might've said no, and I'm giving it a half yes right now just because we've played a lot of Zelda games recently that have kind of blurred the line between what is a dungeon and what is an overworld, right? Mm-hmm. In, in in several different ways, like Skyward Sword is obviously the big one there, right, where it's like even the overworld is pretty blatantly dungeon-esque. Um, but even in Breath of the Wild, like that game has caused me to like recontextualize the way that I kind of categorize things that I'm doing in what we would call an overworld moment to moment. You know, um, and obviously those are both very different games than A Link Between Worlds. But uh, the, all that is to say that I don't necessarily draw as hard of a line in my mind anymore. Um, like it, it's I definitely don't feel anymore like dungeons happen as soon as you walk through a door into a a proper dungeon in Zelda games. Um, and, and I feel like these experiences did give me some of those feelings that I do chase when I'm in traditional dungeons. And I think that's probably part of the reason why I, I enjoyed them. And some of it is a, a lot of it. I think the biggest point in, in favor of what you're asking right now, Max, and you haven't even like answered the question yet. So I'm, I'm getting ahead of you, but um, I think one of the biggest points in favor is going back to what I said a minute ago about how the amount of time that it takes you to do this is gated by the movement of scenery or obstacles within these areas. Mm-hmm. That feels very, very dungeon like. Yeah, you're, you're somewhat at the mercy of what's happening in the environment. How, what do you think? Oh, I, I asked the question partially because I think it's one that doesn't have a clear answer. Um, I think I think this is this is one of the areas where it starts blurring the line between open world and dungeon experiences uh, by kind of taking on some of what we've traditionally associated with dungeons, which is you know there's danger every step. You kind of have to work at it to make progress. Um, there's combat like Lynels are around here. That's scary. Um, <laughs> uh, so like it has a lot of the hallmarks of what we would consider dungeon gameplay. Um, but to me, it doesn't feel like a dungeon, and I don't necessarily have like a, a particularly strong answer for why it doesn't feel like a dungeon, uh, other than that the game mm-hmm. doesn't call it a dungeon. Um, maybe it's because the music didn't change to dungeon music. Well, I, it, I think it, that's uh, sorry. I don't mean to cut you off. Then I think I'm very much in the same camp as you here, Max. Like I don't have a, a good explanation for why it isn't. It just the feeling, the vibe isn't the same. For some unexplainable reason, well, it's at the much moment. less claustrophobic than uh, than dungeons typically tend to be, right? Um, and and you definitely don't feel that same feeling of conquering a space room by room that you do in a dungeon, right? So there's a bit of that as well. Um, yeah, it's it's really it's really tough to very clearly define. I think those are some things that definitely kind of push me a little bit more towards not. 100%, but definitely like inklings of it. I think it's interesting too, because, you know, we talked, I remember back in, in Link's Awakening, we talked about specifically Telltale Heights and how mountain sections of top-down games tend to feel um, a bit more exploratory and like there's much more resistance in exploration uh, 
you know, versus just the the rest of the overworld, right? And so I think it's so interesting that A Link Between Worlds chooses to add even more resistance on top of that in that space, right? Mm -hmm. Uh, Because it kind of just by virtue of being a mountain system with lots of like caverns and twisting paths and whatnot, it already kind of had that. And now it's got even yet another extra level of that. Um, And yeah, it's like same as what we said about about Tau Tau Heights back in the day. Um, This is an area of the map that feels much bigger than the amount of space that it actually has just because you're doing so much stuff in it. Yep. Totally. That's a, yeah. that's good insight. Yeah. I don't have any really counterpoints. I think mm-hmm. all I can give you is a solid degree there and that's yeah. unusual. So, so, um, point th- Linden. Yay. Point, <laughs> point Linden. I appreciate, I like points. Um, one of the things that's so interesting about the low rule section of this to me is that, you know, we've talked for a few weeks now about how the difficulty started to feel like it was really kind of plateauing. Um, Even for me on hero mode, it was feeling like the overworld places that we were going to weren't really challenging me much anymore. I didn't feel like I was having too much of a uh, too much trouble surviving against enemies and whatnot. Um, And pretty much every enemy that you come across in low rules death mountain is highly lethal, Uh, not even just from a damage standpoint, but from like the fact that they can like incapacitate you. I mean, they're freezing enemies here and there's a lot of them, you know. Yeah, and the freezing is intense, and I think, honestly, the uh, while I think personally the Lynels are the most terrifying enemies in the overworld that I have faced in both overworlds combined. Um, these the the freezing enemies are no joke, and like the um, uh, Lyndon, what are they? The Cyclopses, uh, uh, Hinox. The Hinox that throw the fruit, the freezing balls at you. Yeah, they're wearing jackets. I, I know. I like their little parkas. <laughs> yeah, it's pretty cool. Um, <laughs> it's good character design. And then the, um, uh, even the flying mushroom dudes, uh, who spit the freezing balls at you instead of the bombs. Like they're more terrifying than the ones that spit bombs. Like this area is definitely highly dangerous. Yeah. And that was, that was true even with blue mail, even with a bunch of hearts and granted on hero mode, everything's doing more damage to me anyway. But yeah, definitely, um, definitely found myself going back to fairy fountains every now and again for, uh, just to top off on fairies and bottles. You know, um, I also came into this section, I think with only one. Um, and, and that goes back to like what we were talking about, where it's like, I haven't really felt a necessity. I haven't felt like it was a necessity to keep three bottles full of fairies at all times in the overworld um, before now. And this time around, I was definitely like, okay, I should probably go top off definitely before I get into the dungeon. Um, But yeah, you know, really good time. And I feel like when combat is frantic and feels dangerous like this, that's one of those times where um, the experience of a top-down Zelda game can really sing, right? Because the way that combat works and the way, like the frantic feeling of combat tends to have its own unique flavor in top-down Zelda games. And in my opinion, it's one of the things that really differentiates them the most from 3D Zelda games. Yeah. And Breath of the Wild is kind of a notable outlier here, you know? But uh, yeah, so... The combination of that plus all the extra exploration really made this a, a very fun and engaging section of the overworld to me. Yeah. I uh, I tend to 
feel I, I like the I don't know the chaos of trying to track a bunch of different things moving around me um, in 2D Zelda games like there's a certain flavor of the combat you get from that that I enjoy a lot and this is definitely where that's on display uh, more than anywhere other than Tower of Treachery um, <laughs> right which I will talk about here a little bit there later are some parts of this yeah. of this uh, exploring these mountains where like I get really um, afraid of failure because it takes a long time to travel through these areas. And if you die, you have to redo a bunch of it and it's hard and time consuming. So like, I feel this like racket ratcheting tension feeling as I'm kind mm-hmm. of exploring these, these mountains. That's you know, a really good point, especially about how tie fighter. Yeah, that's a really good point, Max. And I think that the sporadic nature of the um, fast travel points in this area is a huge benefit to that tension. In a lot of other areas of the uh, map, it's very easy to just like, even if you die, there's a very close fast travel point where you can get back to where you were within, you know, a minute and a minute and a half. But here, especially with all of the traversal you have to do within the caverns to get where you need to go to get to the next level or anything like that, um, it definitely takes some doing and you really, really uh, don't want to mess that up and re- have to retread all those uh those internal catacomb passageway things. Yeah, definitely. The last thing that I want to say about this before we get into part three, um, and actually we can, do you want to talk about the, I know we've been talking about the Ravio items in part two. Do you want to talk about it in the dungeon for this one? Yeah, yeah, yeah. I think that makes sense. So uh, last thing I want to say then is the moving platform caverns, I thought were very interesting because in some ways they prepare you very well for the experience that you're going to have in the ice ruins dungeon. And in a notable other way, it frustrated me because it sets up certain expectations for how you think you might be able to tackle things in that dungeon, which are then not true in the Mm, dungeon. mm -hmm. I'll be more specific about that later, but there's a little teaser for you. Yeah, that's fair. I think the, the only other thing I really want to talk about in this section before we move on into dungeon is um, that I actually did this a little differently than your uh, bottles full of fairies. I went and got the two of the unique potions you can get from uh, the witch in Hyrule because I finally figured out via Google what to do with all these monster parts that I've been collecting over the course of the game. And that is the witch will sell you special potions if you trade her monster parts and lots of rupees. So I went in with an invincibility potion and the damage dealing potion um, and ended up not using either one for some reason or another that I can't explain. So, um, I had two bottles of fairies and I actually had to use one of them before I even got to the dungeon just to keep myself from dying to some uh, to some roaming Lynels. So uh, definitely a tough section. The conversation about potions is a very interesting one to me, and I'm very curious to hear what you have to say about this, Max, because to me, I find myself in later stages of Zelda games very rarely interacting with uh potion shops um and and it's it's weird too because especially like i feel like starting in wind waker and then going on from there in terms of chronology 
potions in these games have started to get cooler and cooler in terms of the things that they do, right? Mm -hmm. Like there are invulnerability ones and there are ones that give you double attack power and there's ones that will do like a a damage radius around you when you consume it, right? Yep. And on paper, those all sound like really, really, really cool things. Um, But I can never quite balance that amount of usefulness against just having a fairy in the bottle, (laughs) right? Yeah, uh, mm-hmm. for a yeah. lot of players, a lot of it boils down to something called loss aversion, um, which is just this, basically this idea that psychologically we don't like it and we lose a limited resource. Um, so we, we, I know this is like incredibly strong force for me. Like I never use potions because I'm like I should be able to get through here without a potion. I don't want to use up my potion. I spent thirty monster parts on that or whatever. Like um, it's not even very rational um like it's the same thing that that people who play like jrpgs they get to the very last boss and they realize they've like never used up their mega elixirs and healing items and i realized that analogy doesn't land for the review too but um it's the same psychological concept there uh fairies are different because fairies are things that they don't feel valuable like we didn't expend a bunch of resources to get them. Um, and they kind of replenish themselves naturally. Like as you play, you find fairies and also they use themselves automatically. Like that's a big part of it, right? Like if you die, a fairy mm-hmm. is automatically used, but if you die, your red potion isn't automatically drunk. Um, so that whole thing where you have to consciously choose to use up a limited resource, um, versus not choosing it at all for fairies like totally changes your psychological uh, relationship with the, with the resource. And I think, I think in addition to that, for me, it's always a, I want, I need to save this for a harder part. Like I, I, what if I use this now and I come up to a, a harder part that I wish I had had this potion for later. And that's a big problem for me in a lot of games uh, where I will just hoard potions like high level potions or high level items that are like one time use and I'm like I don't want to use this on this fight maybe there's a harder one later and it's only when I start like replaying games and I know what's coming that I can actually pace out the use of those items Mm. better because I know what's ahead and like that's a big thing for me when I'm playing a game that I don't know very well is I don't know what's around the next corner maybe I wish I had this invincibility potion later it's like it's kind of like bomb chews in 3D Zelda games right like you can carry less of them than regular bombs you can like I think in Ocarina of Time I you can they top out at like 10 or something and I never ever use them because, well, I mean, also for one thing, I feel they're like they're way less useful. I feel like just regular bombs are usually more useful anyway. But like, I never want to use these things because then it's like, well, now I'm not going to be full on bomb chews anymore, right? Like, I ever yeah, find like myself you ever need to be ten bomb chews anyway? Right? Yeah, <laughs> like I never do. Um, but I, so I think you're definitely right about that, Matt. I mean, I don't know, Max. Do you do you personally feel that the fairy economy? needs some looking at for future top-down Zelda experiences. Cause I was thinking about this this week um, as kind of an extension of this conversation. And I'm kind of having a moment where I'm kind of re-examining, like, I don't know, maybe get like given how useful they are to you and how low risk they are and how plentiful they are. Maybe this is something that should be tweaked slightly in future top-down Zelda games in some way. Like maybe they are, 
much more rare or maybe you have to use them yourself instead of them procking automatically or something like those like yeah. those are just a few things off the top of my there's head there's a bunch but. of weird stuff that the fairies do um like they make i talked about this in the last episode they make your first few hearts like way more valuable than your later hearts which is already a thing any any game deals with is like the first time you get a new heart that's a 25 percent increase then each time you get another new heart it's a smaller percentage increase um but that's like doubly triply true when it's one of the hearts that gets filled by a fairy versus one that isn't um, right and it does this weird thing where bottles bottles are not like when you imagine the bottles in the Zelda games you're like okay this is like this versatile thing i can choose i can like make important decisions about what i'm going to put in that bottle and no like you're not going to make any decisions you're just going to put fairies in all your bottles they're just they're just fairy containers um and that's kind of like feels like a missed opportunity right for something interesting to happen there instead um, yeah I think one game, one Zelda game that combats this fairly well for me is actually Skyward Sword. And it's because there's so many different types of potions that do different things, like the Shield Restore Potion, which can also give you invulnerability for a certain period of time. But like has, st- but has a, a, a net gain on your inventory and the management of your shield strength. Exactly. Like, I think that introducing potions and items that do things like that are a good way to combat that kind of um, singular economy that ends up happening with fairies and health items. Because then you have like a measurable, somewhat permanent benefit that you're getting in addition to just restoring your health. Right? Exactly. Yeah. 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 That's a good shout. Skyward Sword, you did some cool <laughs> things. Yay. Uh, you did a lot of cool things. One other thing worth pointing out here is um, something a lot of game designers underestimate is players want simple solutions. Um, something that just refills a bunch of your hearts is is universally useful. You don't have to think about it, especially if it's doing it automatically. It's just like having an extra five hearts. Um, whereas something that like gives you a buff is situational, and you need to like make way decisions about whether it's the right time or not to use it. You need to remember to use it. Uh, that additional complexity is a huge drag on players desire to engage with an option. Um, so that's something like game designers need to think, like keep in mind as they're designing like their choices for their players. As players want simple choices when possible. Uh, those are the, uh, those are the insights that we bring you around for Max. <laughs> very good. Very, very well and succinctly explained. All right, but let's go ahead and get into part three, which is the dungeon map where we talk about this week's dungeon for mechanics and music and more. Uh, This week's dungeon is the Ice Ruins, and of course, we've talked a lot about how the dungeons in this game stack up against their counterparts in A Link to the Past, and A Link to the Past gave us one of our most (laughs) infamous moments in all of our podcast history. Igor! Igor the Block, that (laughs) notoriously terrible puzzle, which... uh, we came to find out later was not even necessarily something that all of our listeners were uh, encountering because it was a puzzle that wasn't present in the um, Game Boy Advance version of A Link to the Past. But uh, so here we've got the ice ruins. And I know last week, Max, you said that this is one of the, in your opinion, harder dungeons in the game and could potentially be the longest dungeon in the game, depending on how quickly you kind of figure things out and the amount of backtracking that you do. So I definitely want to talk about all that. I do just want to say up front that, I found as soon as I got in here, 
that I remembered way less of this dungeon than I thought I did. For some reason, in my head, this was the dungeon where you're just traversing a bunch of girders over a bottomless abyss, and you do a lot of that, right? That does happen, but that's all of the lower floors and really starts to happen as you get closer to the boss room. What this dungeon mainly is is an elevator-based, highly vertical dungeon experience, and I completely forgot all of that. So that was a fun surprise for me. Yeah. Um, I, I kind of had a similar experience where I remembered the, like, you know, stretched out over the abyss traveling uh, narrow paths kind of gameplay um, from my playthrough 10 years ago. <laughs> uh, and I didn't remember the fact that, like, the main feature of this dungeon is this central set of rotating elevator platforms um, that go up and down through, like, nine or 10 floors constantly. Uh, which is like the whole dungeon is built around that. You need to you need to figure out what what floor you need to be on and when in order to get access often to a secret part of another floor either by falling at the right spot or coming up at the right spot. Like it's all about uh having a bunch of floors and trying to understand and navigate how they relate to one another. And that's like such a unique and distinctive hook. For a dungeon. I, I feel like I can't think of anything else off the top of my head in terms of dungeons that have done something similar to this. Um, obviously, we have quite a lot of highly vertical dungeon experiences throughout the whole canon of Zelda games. But the fact that we do just have this one main hub of constantly moving elevators and like once you're on those rotating elevators, there's no resistance between you riding all the way from the top floor all the way down to the very bottom and then back up. Right. Right. Um, you even get the big key like instantly. If you take the instantly elevator. I <laughs> did not fig- I didn't figure that part out, but I did ride it almost all the way down, got off, was like, what the hell just happened? Got back on and went all the way back <laughs> up and then just kind of oriented myself to, oh, this is what we're doing. OK, cool. But, that, <laughs> but that's one of the great things about it. Right. Because so similar to you, Max, I found the big key almost immediately. And as soon as I found it, my first thought was like, oh, that's brilliant because you could have that happen if you have the patience to just ride the elevator through all floors and see what happens. Or you could get through almost the entire dungeon and still have not found the big key and think to yourself, like, where is this stinking thing? Because it's not through any of these rooms I'm unlocking. It's not popping up after defeating any number of enemies, right? The solution is super simple, but also it wasn't, like, directly shown to you. It wasn't in your face. It wasn't too easy. Even when you get the compass, like, unless you scroll all the way through all the floors on your <laughs> uh, touch screen, all the map, you, like, don't see that. And I just happened to have, like you said, Lennon, I had done everything else in the dungeon. Didn't find the big key. And I was like, huh, weird. So I just went and got back on the elevator and kept going down. And I was like, oh, there it is. I found it. A little side right note there. about that is that like so, so often I find that the compass slash map, they're combined in this game. Mm-hmm. Um, I find them to be kind of throwaway items like you get them and forget about them, you know? Oh, I think the compass is the most useful dungeon item in this game. But, well, I mean, yes, in a few ways it is. But I find that to be even more so in highly vertical dungeons like this. Because what ends up happening is that you do have to be very intentional about checking your map and rotating through the floors. And that's not something that you really have to spend a ton of your time doing in a lot of other dungeons. Mm -hmm. And so um, definitely felt very, very 
uh, necessary in this whole experience to me. Yeah, yeah I totally agree. And I, what the other cool thing I liked about the layout of this dungeon was it was kind of separated into halves. The first half of this dungeon, you're on the left side of the map, the whole on the bottom couple of floors. And like you're filling in the you're like bluing in the sections, right? Like the areas you visited are blue and the areas you haven't are gray. And like I'm going down, down, down. And the whole left side is just getting blue, blue, blue. But none of the right side is getting blue. It's all still gray. And so like it's it's about going down so that you can go to the right and then go back up and then you know kind of in between there and all of that traversal is based around filling in the map so that and you do have to visit basically every area of the dungeon in order to complete it uh to unlock all the pathways to get to the boss door so even if you do have the big key you still have to do pretty much the whole dungeon to unlock everything to get to where you need to go, which is obviously the boss room. Yeah. Max, I'm going to bounce it over to you. I, I'd love for you to just give us some top level thoughts about this. I mean, yeah. I asked you the same question last week, but like, I mean, you chose this one, you know, give us a, give us a few reasons why that was. Yeah. So this was, this was actually my first choice of dungeon to talk about, which probably isn't shocking for you two to hear. Um, <laughs> Uh, so the whole, the, the elevator as a central feature that lets you get to any floor you want right off the get go feels like a 3d Zelda dungeon to me, because one of the, the big kind of, uh, innovations that happened in 3d Zelda dungeon design versus 2d Zelda dungeon design prior to that, uh, was that 3d Zelda dungeons tend to have a large central room. Um, and this large central room is kind of like a, a home base almost. Like you can get to most parts of the dungeon from the central room without having to retraverse everything. Um, mm -hmm. It kind of lets you compartmentalize your mental map of the dungeon. You don't really have to keep it all in your head at once. All you need to well, it's do like is, a hub. Yeah, it's like a hub with spokes. Exactly. Um, and this doesn't isn't entirely like that, but it it, it functions like that in enough ways that like you kind of only need to remember stuff as it relates to the central elevators. Uh, and that's very 3D Zelda Dungeon-like. Uh, other thoughts, like, I think this is probably the hardest dungeon for many players of this game. Um, it, was the, it was the hardest one for me up until this point, for sure. Yeah. And I, I think it's just because the human mind generally is not amazing at this kind of vertical mental mapping. We're designed, we're built more for horizontal maps um like one uh, two-dimensional maps not three-dimensional maps uh we're good at those um so i think like just at a very base level that kind of thinking is just hard for a lot of players um and they definitely like take advantage of that to to kind of craft the puzzles of this dungeon um yeah well, and and then on top of that, you have an extra level of disorientation because not only are you trying to combat what you're talking about, which is that you you're having to think a little bit harder about how 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 the floors stack on top of each other, right? Mm -hmm. But also the layout of this dungeon changes irreversibly as you progress through it. So you have that extra level of like puzzle dungeon of just having to try and keep track of what all's happening. Yeah, like that part of your mental map, it's outdated now. <laughs> Got to go refresh your understanding. Uh, it's funny because the in 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 a link to the past as well. The ice palace is probably the hardest dungeon for most players for the exact same reasons. So they definitely I, they must have intentionally done it, right? They were like, okay, this is going to be a callback to link to the past. 
the ice palace is going to be hard as hell. Um, and it's going to stress your vertical brain thinking. And <laughs> uh, it's going to have like ice where it's hard to traverse. It's going to have hard monsters. Like they definitely, it feels like they intentionally were just like, yep, this is the hard dungeon. Um, because of a link to the past's history there. Uh, let's see. Let me look at my notes. It's, it's so interesting just off of that point, because ice palace in a link to the past was the hardest one for me in that game as well. And at the time, I definitely remember thinking that in some ways it felt a little bit, not necessarily unfair, but I just felt so lost in that dungeon so often. Yeah. And with this one, you have a similar, like you have an adjacent feeling and a very similar base level of design around the whole thing. But now we're back to what you're talking about, Max, which is that central feature of the moving elevator. And like just knowing that if you keep that in mind at all times and you can always kind of like return to that, mm-hmm. it, it really does. It, it kind of helps ground the whole experience. Yeah, absolutely. Um, it, it doesn't feel unfair in the way the Link to the Past Ice Palace does. We talked a lot in the Your Link to the Past season about how the the puzzle in a, the Ice Palace, you know what puzzle I'm talking about. It's the puzzle that makes it hard. Um, where you gotta drop the block. Like parts of that puzzle were not trained and like actually were an exception to rules you had been trained to follow about how the game works. Um, so that was unfair. Right, that was like just straight up kind of unfair, unforgiving game design in Link to the Past's Ice Palace, um, which is why they removed that puzzle in the GBA version. Um, this dungeon doesn't have anything that's quite so unfair. Uh, it's just kind of stacking a lot of elements that at least are fair on top of each other, uh, sometimes literally. <laughs> But but still have complexity, yeah, right? Exactly, it's complex because there's a lot of stuff interrelating to each other. Um, yeah, but it's not breaking the rules about how your understanding of the game works, like Link to the Past did. Yeah, completely agreed. Oh yeah, something that happened to me while I was playing this dungeon. Uh, I totally so it's it's the longest dungeon of the game for me because it's the hardest like i actually get stuck i end up wandering around like unsure what to do which isn't really an experience i get anywhere else in this game um and i I like that experience Uh, (laughs) but it did lead to this one moment for me where i was like it was really tired it was like 1 a.m i was like okay i need to go to sleep let me put my 3ds to sleep and i actually turned it off instead of putting it to sleep Oh no! (laughs) You know it's the it's the one Zelda game, really in the whole series where you have to save at save points. Um, I couldn't save, so I just had to. I accidentally turned it off and lost all my progress and had to redo half the dungeon. Um, I don't actually know why this game has save points. Like I've tried to think about it as I'm playing through and like to 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 explain it in the podcast, and I'm legitimately like unsure why they have save points in this game um, which is such a big departure from all previous Zelda games you'd think it would be like a, a major deal and I just have no idea why they have save points uh, the only thing I can think of it has something to do with like trying to prevent players from um, like gaming or exploiting the item rental system Yeah, but I don't really see how it achieves that 
uh, I mean, I guess you could always, I guess you could make the argument that what you're trying to do is to make it so that a player cannot go into a dungeon with rented items, save like periodically and then fall in battle and lose them and then just reload the save. Yeah. Right. I mean, I think that that's kind of like a, a cynical way to look at it. Right. Because it sort of assumes that Nintendo's looking for a way to just keep that, the, the difficulty of that mechanic ever present and not give you any ways to circumvent it. Um, yeah. And, and like a lot of games solve that problem in a variety of other ways, right? They just, they have auto saves when you die or, you can't reload uh, at whim and it's kind of annoying to reload. Uh, you know, there's all sorts of stuff that games do. Um, so I assume it's related to that. Uh, I just thought that was a funny anecdote about this dungeon for me. Uh, the music, what do you think of the music in this dungeon? I think that what, what the music in this dungeon is doing really well is the same thing that basically all the low rule dungeons are doing, which is giving you a soundtrack that is not, it's not like, it's not a banger or anything, you know, it's definitely not going to be one that people are finding on like top 15 Zelda tracks on YouTube lists or anything, you know, um, like Stone Tower Temple, for instance, is on that all the time, right? It's, it's nothing like that. But what it is, is excellent atmosphere for this dungeon. Like the music to me, it feels cold, you know, mm. the this the same way that we were saying last week's soundtrack made that dungeon feel exotic and uh, and antique, you know, um, and the same way that Dark Palace's soundtrack made me feel just kind of a little oogie. You know, it had like it really played into the uh, to the atmosphere of claustrophobia in that dungeon. Um, this one feels very similar, right? Like it, it just it makes me feel cold. And I think that uh just because of that, I can call it a success, right? Uh-huh. It's it's doing exactly what a dungeon soundtrack should be doing, which is just existing as an ever present addition to the aesthetic. I have I have a note written down here. Well, actually, I want to hear Matt's answer first. Yeah, I I mean I kind of agree with Lyndon. I didn't love it, didn't hate it. I think it set the tone well. Um, I agree that the the feeling overall kind of grounds you in the chilliness of the place. Yeah. Um, I think it was no more effective than just the visual cue um, of the dungeon itself. But yeah, I mean, overall, I, I would say it was it was a perfectly fine um, dungeon soundtrack. Yeah. Okay. So my note is uh, music is too happy and Christmassy. <laughs> oh really uh, and i had to go okay. I just, just now i had to go listen to it just couldn't remember it to be honest um and i think i think what was missing for me from the, the music for this dungeon was a sense of danger like there's nothing ominous about it nothing that makes me feel less safe or like this place is less hospitable it's kind of just like sort of generically happy or at least not unhappy tones um so I, I will that say that so I I see where you're coming from. I did feel a certain ominous like I, like I had a very ominous feeling throughout this entire dungeon. Um and that's not necessarily because of the music by itself. I think a lot of that is just because so much of the dungeon is spent on very thin walkways over bottomless chasms and it does feel very dangerous. 
right? Yeah. Um, it actually, it's doing, this This entire dungeon is doing a really, really cool thing that no other dungeon in this game has done before, where you were just like staring straight into an abyss for more than half of it. Yeah. Um, and that's really stinking cool. And that's definitely something that I don't think top-down Zelda dungeons have ever really been very good at leveraging, no. you know, is is like the feeling of this dungeon being parked in a much larger place and so and kind of a top-down zelda is the only kind of zelda that could achieve this because the camera is always pointed down when you're playing a 3d zelda game you're not looking down most of the time you wouldn't be staring right. into this lava abyss a thousand miles below you um which is a fun dichotomy by the way is like the lava and the vast distance way below i yeah i i, I love that too yeah i thought that was interesting it, to me it kind of felt like the ice palace was um smothering the volcano that is death mountain and it's the ice palace was the reason that death mountain in low rule was a frozen wasteland oh. instead of a uh, almost like the ice cavern in ocarina of time where it's like the all of the cold energy that's freezing this area is pouring out of this one location yes that's exactly what i that kind of made me think um for the whole dungeon experience itself a cold wind is blowing from zora's domain <laughs> do you feel it Ooh. <laughs> the music, no, I, by the way I, I does think... sound really similar to the ice uh, ice cavern for a period of time. Yeah, a, like a, a a lot of chimey sounds. Yeah, you know. Yeah, Echoey. yeah. I think you're definitely. Um, I have a random note that's only sort of related to the dungeon, which is that it's a shame Yuga is like totally absent from the whole latter half of this game. Yeah, it. You're you're right. Like as soon as we get out of Low Rule Castle, haven't seen him, haven't even heard from him. Like everything that we get is, you know, we get those. Uh, occasional uh hilda interludes but never a view or a feeling of yuga's or ganon's presence at all and it's interesting yeah yeah I interesting definitely agree with absence that. i want to go back to something you were saying a minute ago max about the feeling of like how fun it is to actually get legitimately lost in a dungeon and i will agree that i had that same thing happen several times this week the one that's coming immediately to mind is there's a there's a room in the southwestern portion of the dungeon. I forget what floor it's on, but it's the one where those giant ice circles are moving around and you have to ride around on them, mm -hmm. right? And I got stuck down in that room for a little while, and a lot of it was just because the solution to getting out of there is in walking through like an, an interlaced lattice of those ice beams where there's like there, there's like varying levels of height to them. Like there's a ramp up. And then you have to like go up and over something. And um, it took me a minute to figure all that out just because one, like the solution, like the path that you were supposed to walk on was off screen, right? Like you had to actually kind of mosey around to find it and see it. And the little moving ice circles didn't directly take you there. Um, that's just one example. But there were several things that were kind of like that throughout all of this, several moments of backtracking where I knew where I had to be, but now I'm seeing that there's like a huge gap where these ice girders are not connecting and yeah. I have to go back and try to find a way to connect them, you know? Um, and I think that that's, that's always really great. I think that backtracking in dungeons can be very frustrating. It's never very frustrating when it's done this way, where basically you're having to unlock, um, 
connections to different places, you know, um, and then you can kind of immediately see the way that the environment is rotating to uh, to like allow you access to the place that you were trying to be. I always really liked that feeling. And I thought that it was done very well here. This is kind of where I want to talk about. So following up on the teaser that I gave in part two, which is that I think that the moving platform section of Death Mountain sets you up and trains you for a lot of the ways that you're going to be interacting with ice ruins but then also kind of leads to some misleading expectations. And so obviously the way that it trains you to be ready for this dungeon is that uh, a lot of it is just like walking very thin paths, some of which are moving, trying to get from one place to another, right? Yeah. And even to the point where some of it is is very vertical in nature where you have to jump from one floor down to another floor um, – and there's like some element of timing involved, right? Like that is present in this dungeon. But the way that it kind of set me up for a few lost hearts was that there are a few floors where you can see the lattice work of girders and stuff on the floor below you. But trying to jump down to them just gives you the auto fall to your death. Ah, uh, yeah. You're like, oh, it looks like I could jump down there if I just aim right. But nope. Yeah. And I, I think that's so – it's so weird um, because on the one hand, I really appreciate that level of visual depth, right? I like that you can see lower levels of the dungeon from the ones that you're on at that moment. That's a really, really cool thing, and it's something that we've said we like a lot about this game as we've been playing through it is yeah. like that that extra level of depth in a top-down game. And I still do like it here, um, but to me, it's just sort of – I'm sure the answer to this question, like I was about to say, I'm not sure why they did it this way necessarily. The answer I'm sure is that it would break puzzles if you could just drop down onto another area from one above. Right. Yeah. Um, but, but it's still, but it still created a frustrating sense of like, Oh, in death mountain, you were kind of training me to solve this one way because on the moving platform section in the overworld, you could like, if you timed it right, there were several places where you could just drop all the way from an, a, a high moving platform and bypass several of the other levels of them and drop down onto a lower one. Right. Yeah. Yeah. I, I did that on accident one time. Yeah, and I was like, oh, no, I'm going to die. It's really satisfying got to saved. be like falling and like, oh, if I just push right, I can angle myself. Like, yeah, you can do that in Death Mountain, but not here. Uh, yeah, that's a good call out. Like, that is actually kind of a game design uh, faux pas to train players for one thing and then change the rules later. Uh, just like the Ice Palace <laughs> and LTTP. <laughs> right. Uh, right matt uh how about you we haven't really talked to you too much about the dungeon since we've been in this section i'm I'm curious what you thought about it and, and what your feelings were yeah i think that it's definitely it's definitely an ice it's definitely an ice cavern it's definitely an ice palace it's um and historically those are not my favorite like the the huge verticality of this dungeon the unique mechanics are all cool um i i do think that this dungeon utilizes backtracking in a more unique and rewarding way than most other dungeons have ever been able to do it um it's not my favorite dungeon that we've had i think especially coming off of the desert palace last week which was so great um this dungeon felt a little um 
I don't know. It, it was a little much, I guess. I, I don't I'm trying to figure out a better way to describe how I felt about it. But like it just didn't resonate with me quite as well. And I think part of it is what you're talking about with, the you know, not being able to utilize the same dropping down to the lower level all the time like you could um, getting here. But even more than that, it was just a lot of the ways that you traverse the dungeon is the same. It is go to a different part to push a button or pull the tongue from one of the statues to then open up a path elsewhere that you then have to backtrack to go do that path to then go to another place that you couldn't find. And it's just very traversal heavy. Um, and it, it didn't feel puzzly. It felt more traversal and it, and it was scripted in some ways to where there was really only one path you could take to get where you needed to go. And there was really only one way to do it right. And however long it took you to find that one way to do it right is however long it's going to take you to find. And this dungeon didn't take me long. I, I would say that I didn't spend nearly as much time in this dungeon as I did even in like the Dark Palace. Um, but it just didn't like captivate me the same way that Dark Palace or Sand Palace really did. That's interesting to me because I and granted, I remember Dark Palace a little bit better than I remembered this dungeon. I've already said that I forgot like large swaths of this one. So that probably has something to do with this. But I spent way more time in this dungeon than I have any other dungeon in this game so far. Yeah, I don't know what it was, but I just kind of took a path and followed it. And if there was a button, I hit it. And if I didn't find a button, I you know got what I could and then went searching for another button. Um, I didn't spend a bunch of time retreading paths that I had already taken outside of like getting to a new section. Like there wasn't a lot of times where I found myself super lost. Um, I think one of the only times that that really happened was where you have to go into a room where you are on a one by one block that's um, hemmed in and you have to use the fire rod and melt a whole bunch of large ice blocks. And then you have to throw a bomb to activate a switch that under that was underneath the ice blocks you just melted. Go back out and then go around. You know the room I'm talking about? Yeah, yeah. Yeah. I think that was probably the one that took me the longest just from trying to figure out what to do there in the melting and then also in the bomb throwing and then also figuring out how to get to that room from where I was. Cause I hadn't entered that room previously. Right. So I think that was probably the one that took me the longest, but outside of that, it was really just, I took a path and maybe I just got lucky in picking the right path occasionally. Mm -hmm. Um, but yeah, it just felt, um, I don't know, stale, I guess is, is a little, is one way of putting it of just kind of doing the same thing over and over again. Interesting. I, I came away from it with a, a very different uh, perspective and experience, which yeah. is interesting to me. I think we've been pretty aligned on like how we're feeling about all of these so far in this game. Yeah, so. I, I think we have too. I, this one just didn't, didn't hit it for me for some reason. How, how'd you feel about, Oh, sorry. Go ahead, Max. Oh, I was just going to say, um, this dungeon to me, it's it's mechanically complex and uh, well not complex but like navigationally complex I guess is more accurate. Yeah. Um, and like it does a lot of stuff I like about a dungeon where I get lost and uh, I have to actually you know spend some time trying to figure out what to do, which is an experience I kind of miss. Um, but I will say it doesn't capture my imagination aesthetically in the same way that some of the other dungeons do. It feels very hmm. gamey 
and not like this is like a real ruin that could exist in this mountain. Um, it's like giant ice blocks just spinning around and moving for kind of no apparent reason and um, big elevators uh, of big blocks just moving all the time. Like it doesn't really feel like a real place in this world like some of the other dungeons do a better job of feeling. Um, yeah. Which maybe is sort of what you're getting at, Matt. Yeah, I think that's that's probably right. Yeah, I, I think that's a good way of, of putting that. I will say I I had the experience of feeling like I was trapped in this dungeon, which I've never had that experience in any other Zelda dungeon. Because normally in Zelda games, you have like a magic mirror that warps you to the beginning, or you can just kind of save and quit and you'll appear at the beginning. Um, but this game has save points. You can't save and quit. And it doesn't have a magic mirror to warp you to the beginning. If you're in the dungeon, you need to find your way out of the dungeon in order to exit the dungeon and save and stop playing. Um, and I like, I felt like I was trapped in the bottom few floors of this dungeon for a while, unable to figure out how to get back out, uh, which I thought was, was a pretty interesting kind of side effect of like the save system and the lack of a mirror and maybe an intentional thing they were going for. I'm not sure. So how did you feel about the combat that happened in this dungeon, Matt? Because to me, kind of an extension of what was happening on Low Rule Death Mountain, I was like, I had some survivability issues in here for sure. There's a lot of enemies that do a fairly hefty amount of damage. Um, there's a few areas where you're in kind of like a little bit of a bullet hell situation where you're trying to fight a few enemies, but also there are turrets that are firing ice balls at you. Yes. Right? Um, and the enemies that you're fighting do quite a lot of damage to you. Um, and then in addition to that, you have a lot of areas where you've got ice floors on top of that, which yeah, we haven't. You're sliding around, you're getting shot at by turrets, the ice wizard robes are throwing ice beams at you, <laughs> right. and you're just like, whoop. Which whoop. we haven't even talked about the ice floors yet, and I think I've said in earlier Zelda games that the mechanic of an ice floor is something that I have not much patience for in most games that it's used in. Um like especially Zelda games, right? You know, where you just have that loss of traction and you're just kind of slip sliding all over the place. Yeah. Uh, um, and I, I think that like if if those had been paired with some more intense combat sections in this dungeon more frequently than it would have annoyed me more than it did as it was, I'd never found that it was something that was really pissing me off. Yeah, it was a minor annoyance more than just like a major, oh my God, I hate this thing. And and I think the combat was sparse enough that it didn't even leave a major impression on me outside of uh, the introduction of Ice Wiz robes, um, which were cool um, in their own way, I guess. Um, very easy to kill with a golden sword, one hit and they're dead. Right. So, you know, kind of whatever. Um, being frozen is probably one of my least favorite things in any video game ever. I always hate it. Um, just the complete removal of any ability to do anything. You can't defend, you can't attack, you can't, you can't maneuver, like nothing. And I think that, that that by itself is probably my least favorite thing about any ice anything. And I'm sure that's why the uh, stasis meta was my least favorite period of destiny <laughs> pvp in all history right. yes i remember you loved it yeah yeah no it's horrible so that that's i just don't like it and i don't think that it's necessary like slow me sure whatever i get that but 
it's just obnoxious to be frozen in place and being and not able to do anything. Um, I will agree with that. I, I think that uh, I can't think off the top of my head of a time that I have been frozen by an enemy in a video game and felt like, oh, yeah, that was like that was fun. And I felt like I could do something about it, you know? Yeah. Um, and so. Uh, yeah, that's kind of what I'll say generally about combat. Um, those ice turrets are menaces, dude. They are, they're like, they're like, um, they're like jackal snipers in Halo 2. They don't <laughs> miss. They, they do not miss. And, um, that was a slightly annoying, but it was sparse enough that it didn't like tank my enjoyment of anything. Okay. I would say. Well, that's good. The, well, the boss, however, I thought the way that the boss does this is very interesting. And I know we're going to get to the boss in a bit. But so before we do that, I know we said we were going to talk about the main item that we are using this week, uh, which is, of course, the fire rod and is essential to traversing this dungeon. You must have you. You must melt many things in order to get through this dungeon. And it's so interesting because I think if I if there's one thing that I felt could have been done better in this dungeon, which I enjoyed a lot. I don't know if I've made that apparent yet. I really, really liked this dungeon. Um, The one thing that I think could have been done better is the integration of the dungeon puzzles with the item that you have to have to get through the dungeon, Um, especially coming off of last week in the Desert Palace where the sand rod was used in such a spectacular way throughout that whole experience. The fire rod, which, by the way, is my favorite or second favorite item in this entire game, especially once it's upgraded. I love the fire rod. Um, I felt like it never really came alive for the purposes of solving puzzles in this dungeon. It was always a very like, you know, immediate win scenario where you have to melt a block, you know, throw some fire and the block is melted. And and that's about as deep as it ever got. I used it a ton for combat, right? Um, there are a lot of enemies in this dungeon that like, there are some that you have to defeat with the fire rod and the ones that you don't have to defeat with the fire rod, uh, you still can most always just chuck a a huge tornado of flame at them (laughs) and it works just as well. It's the wrong choice. It's never the wrong choice. It really is never the wrong choice. I used the fire rod to get through Lionel's. Like that was the only way I defeated Lionel's throughout the entire traversal. Yeah. 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 (laughs) So that's kind of where I'm at with it. I think that uh, that's a a spot of disappointment on on an overall like very fun experience for me. I think there's a few things that interesting that happened with the fire rod for puzzle solving. Um, it's got the pillar of flame, which means it can be used to, to hit things that are higher than it, which they use for a few puzzles here and there, like to light a torch that's up on a grate of a view. Um, and, and in the other direction, you can, you're actually throwing down a little projectile, which normally doesn't matter because it just hits the ground in front of you. But if you're standing on the edge of a cliff or you're standing on a permeable grate, it falls through and goes below, which they also use for a few puzzles here and there. So I thought that was interesting, but I don't think they really um, took it beyond the basics of like, oh, you see a thing, you can't get to it. Oh, I guess I'd better use this fire rod that I'm already using constantly anyways. Um, Kind of where it stops. 
Yeah, I, yeah, I, I think I agree with you, Max. I didn't, I didn't, I, didn't, I don't want to misconstrue my opinion and and make it sound like I don't think it was used well ever in this dungeon. I just think again, more com- of it. We're coming off of Desert Palace, and Sandrod puzzle solving was really something special. But you know, the other side of that is that I said last week that the Sandrod past that is one of my least favorite items in the game. So you yeah. know, it's it's a give and take. <laughs> That's true. That's totally right. true. So let's go ahead and talk about the boss, which I thought was a fun boss fight, honestly. This was definitely the highlight of the dungeon for me. I thought this was a really fun boss fight. Well, why don't you talk us through it then, Matt? Yeah, so I, I think that, number one, the boss looks cool. It's This is like little floating tentacle mass with an eyeball in the middle. It looks like a weird darkness harpy thing. And um, I, I like the boss design. And when I first saw it, I was like, oh, this is going to be interesting. This is going to be like a fast moving boss that I have to try to hit in the eyeball while it's running around. And then he jumps out and encases himself in ice. And I was like, oh, it's going to be that. All right. So we're definitely using the fire rod here. Good to know. <laughs> And then he starts shooting like space turrets at me that lay down a grid network of lasers that then flash freeze me in the middle of them. So there's just like a lot going on that was really cool. And while I will say I hate being frozen, the way that this boss did that was really cool. And like it was so cool that I was like, I'm not even mad at the moment. Like, And you're constantly trying to avoid all of this. In an arena that not only has no bumpers on the sides, but it also a has a hole, giant in, the hole middle. in the middle. Yeah. Right. Yeah. So I'm going all over the place. Luckily, having the upgraded fire rod made hitting this guy a lot easier because it's an infinite forward motion until it falls off of a cliff or hits a wall. Right. So like that is huge that I have the upgraded fire rod here. And like I really enjoyed the maneuverability that this boss had moving around, throwing those stasis turrets down trying to hit him with the fire rod multiple times and then like i i do wish that the damage phase where he's he's just like kind of running away from you i kind of wish he fought back a little bit more there because i never got even close to dying against this boss which i think has been true of almost every single boss we fought besides gemasaur king which killed me but um yeah, I like this boss fight. I think it was well designed. It was fast paced. It was there was a lot going on. There was multiple uh, things to avoid, um, and the multi phase prong approach of like having to get him into damage phase. Then he doesn't just lay there and let you smack him around. Um, you have to chase him around. And uh, I thought it was a very well designed and fun boss fight. I liked it a lot. Cool. Uh, I agree. I really enjoyed this boss fight. I think that it's it's a great time and it has that nice frantic feeling that I think some of the best top-down Zelda boss fights have. I feel like when top-down Zelda bosses don't have a really strong mechanical hook and they also are not frantic, then they're usually just pretty boring, right? And totally this, agree. This had a lot of that frantic feeling and a little bit of that mechanical feeling and Together, they created a pretty fun overall experience. What about you, Max? Yeah, I, uh, I, honestly, I'd forgotten the boss. I had to go just look a video of it. But <laughs> uh, I beat this game <laughs> a couple months ago now, so that's that's my excuse. Um, but yeah, I, I remember liking this boss. Uh, it feels like a Link to the Past boss, right? Like a lot of the bosses in this game do, but this one in particular, it feels like, uh, you know, Vitreous or cold stare or something like it's got the same vibe right uh which i appreciate um and uh it's got a big arena which the boss last week did too which i think we all agreed 
was kind of a cool thing um, to feel like there's more freedom and more movement going on. Uh, I think it's got a lot of good, like the mechanics of it are well communicated to the player, which is one of the hardest things to do in boss design. Like you want to have the boss, give the boss interesting attacks that are feel dangerous, um, but also like it's easy to read them. Like it's kind of a hard line to walk sometimes. Um, and they do a really good job with that for this boss. Uh, so yeah, overall A plus for nameless ice ruin boss. Who's I just tried to Google it. I can't find his name. <laughs> I ice tentacle boss, whatever, whatever it is. Yeah. Cool. Uh, yeah, totally agreed. Uh, totally agreed. Really fun overall experience for sure. Uh, before we move out of part three, I have two questions real quick. And one is for you specifically, Matt. And I'm kind of yes. wondering now. Yes. You have said that for a variety of reasons, this dungeon, while fun enough, did not really capture you in any meaningful way. Sure. I would love to hear what you consider to be a the, the gold standard of top-down Zelda dungeons. Like what? 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 Oh are, man! What is this competing against for you? Well, just within this game, I think the two that I called out stand above the rest, bar none. Dark Palace and um, Sand Palace are both just excellent examples of dungeons that are focused in their puzzles. They are difficult in their combat or boss fights. They have excellent traversal and usage of an item and generally challenge me uh, or the user in in a meaningful way that sticks with you um overall like all top downs that we've played um man uh i'd have to go back and and look at some of the other ones that we've played i've got one that immediately comes to mind and that is actually kind of kind of goes into some of the same conversational lines that we're talking along Mm -hmm. right now well then tell us what it is yeah uh so to me the one to beat is eagle's tower in Link's awakening Right. Mm-hmm. Another vertical dungeon. Yeah. Um, you know, another situation where you're doing a lot of dropping between floors and doing things, solving puzzles that influence the landscape of floors both above and below you. Right. Yeah. Also, this boss's name is Dark Stare. D-H-A-R-K-S-C-A-R-E. Ah. Oh, there you go. Well, no wonder I thought of Cold Stare. K-H-O-L-D. <laughs> so many extra consonants um yeah uh but yeah so to to me i mean eagle's tower is definitely one but uh yeah well cold stare is the name of the boss in ice palace of a link to the past so yep Yep. there you go there you go yeah anyway but i i do agree with you uh just kind of in summation i i agree with you that desert palace and dark palace to me were both more fun than this Mm -hmm. but i felt that this was a very close third to those fair enough yeah. Um, and then the other thing I wanted to bring up, just a question for the table. What's your favorite ice dungeon in a Zelda game? Mm. Max, you can take this one first if you want. I, I have an answer. Probably uh, right uh, here, but. The, man, I'm forgetting the name of it. The uh, the Yeti's Mansion in Twilight. Oh, yeah, yeah. absolutely. It's Snow Peak. Definitely Snow Peak. Yep. yep. That is an easy answer. Yeah. Yeah. For like, absolutely although would you would you consider that I like this ice palace? <laughs> Would you consider Snow Peak ruins in Majora's Mask to be an ice that temple? is that is Snowhead Snowhead yeah 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 whatever yeah. and yes I would oh man I definitely would um, I think Snow Peak ruins in Twilight Princess is better than that 
I need to replay Snow Peak Ruins. I haven't played it in probably 10 years. I, I always recall Snowhead and Majora's Mask being my least favorite dungeon in that game. Same. Yeah, there's a lot of... Yeah. And, now that, and I'm thinking back to it less fondly. I think Great Bay Temple might be my least favorite, but I don't know. We'll, we'll talk we'll about talk it when about we play it. it. Yeah. We'll, yeah, we'll talk about <laughs> it when we play it. We'll talk about it later. Uh, that brings us, of course, to the end of part three. Let's get into part four, which is Bloopy Trails, where we talk about fascinating things that diverted our attention this week. One one thing that, to throw out there before we move to part three. Imagine go. what it would be like to come to the Ice Ruins as your first low roll dungeon. I would die. Nope. Uh-uh. I feel like a person who does that... What, uh, there's so many barriers yep. to 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 that being your first dungeon, and to to the point where I would be willing to bet that like maybe an infinitesimal percent of players of this game just do that on accident. I can definitely see myself in a future playthrough doing that intentionally. <laughs> That's because you hate yourself. <laughs> I mean, it sounds fun, right? Like, I mean. The, the the like side game that I'm playing with all of these, especially when I play them just for funsies, not as part of this podcast, is that I'm always trying to find like harder is, ways to do it. What is the way that I can push myself in this game? You know? Yeah, that's fair. Yeah. And playing I playing Ice Palace first in low rule definitely sounds like a pretty good way to do that. So Yeah, no doubt. Yeah. Good question, Max. You know what is that. one of the best top down dungeons that we've ever played? What? Face Shrine. <sighs> Oh, man. Yeah, I mean, Face Shrine is great. It's always tough for me to separate the dungeon of Face Shrine from the awesome plot things that happen in that section of Link's Awakening. Face Shrine is one that you can that you definitely get lost in quite yeah. a lot. Eagle's Tower is great. Face um, Shrine's good. Face Shrine, I like Gargoyle's Sh- Domain is fun. I like Face part. Shrine a lot more now that it's come out in its remastered version, and yeah. it's all like red and kind of, it's yeah. very sinister feeling. For sure. Um, yeah, but... Gargoyles yeah. Domain's a good one. Yeah, good good call on Face Shrine. I like that. I'll take a Link's Awakening shout out whenever I can get it. All right, but let's uh, go ahead and move on to part four, which is Bloopy Trails, where we talk about interesting things that diverted our attention this week. Matt, I'm going to bounce it to you first. Um, Interesting things. Uh, Not much. I didn't actually do any more Treacherous Tower uh, this week. I kind of want to get... I don't know if I want to get the red mail or not. I'm assuming the red mail is in the very end at low rules, so I'm, I may try to tackle I, it before. I would not go. You get this uh, uh, just so you don't waste a ton of time. You get the red mail in low rule castle, yeah, as the, it, during the final dungeon. I, I thought so. So I may hit treacherous tower next week and try to uh, finish that third, um, the third tier. Um, cause I lost on the third tier last week. So I need to try that again. Um, I did, I got a whole nother heart container and I got 15 more Maya Mai's or my Mai's, uh, this week. So I upgraded the ice rod this week was what I upgraded. And then I need to go turn in the rest of my Maya Mai's when I start my next playthrough and probably upgrade the tornado rod, I guess. I don't know. Hmm. So a few things to say about that, but I'm going to bounce it to Max first. Yeah, I think uh, so. I finished collecting all the Maya mice in the stretch leading up to this dungeon. Um, so I got my final reward for all of that. Uh, and I think that's just about, I mean, that's a big thing, but that's the only thing I really did. Um, the only thing I had left to do at this stage of the game, um, because this was the last dungeon that I did. 
Gotcha. Okay, that makes sense. I was going to say, I still have 25-ish Mai Mai's to go, so. Yeah, I have. I actually also have 25 to go, yeah. Yeah. So you were talking about the, what, did we figure, the, is it Tower of Treachery or Treacherous it's Tower? Treacherous Tower. Okay, cool. So I went, I went in there for the first time this week and breezed through the first two experiences pretty beginner and intermediate breezed through them pretty quickly um still difficult with uh hero mode and also not having the gold master sword and um i did not have what was the other thing i was missing there's there's one or two items that i typically use in here at the ex, the expert level mm-hmm. that i did not have or did not have upgraded that made it a little difficult right yeah um but to to your point about what you're going to upgrade next if it's a goal of yours to beat treacherous tower on expert yes definitely upgrade your tornado rod it is yeah. a lifesaver yeah um, I, I pretty much permanently have got the tornado rod on one button and the fire rod on another button on expert mode. Um, those two will carry you a long way, but I don't know. Like I had so much fun even just doing those first two levels. I didn't even give the third one a try yet just because that's usually like, feels like it takes about an hour every time I do it. It's 50 floors. Yeah. I mean, it's, it's, it's yeah. hella long. Yeah. I, I did the first two floors a couple of weeks ago. I didn't even I don't even think I had the red sword or the blue mail when I did the first two floors. Yeah. Um, like it was and it was fun and challenging. The third the third one is really hard. Um, I did that with a red sword and the blue mail and I I done died. Um, so definitely looking forward to throwing myself back at that uh, challenge. Yeah, me as well. I'm, I'm very excited to go and do it because to me. What's so fun about that experience is that there's so much trial and error that's required, mm-hmm. especially on hero mode. I mean, I in past playthroughs, I think I've I've I beat it on normal mode once and I beat it on hero mode in that playthrough, right? And um it's so difficult because so much stuff is doing a lot of damage to you, especially like a lot of these enemies that we've been fighting in this section of the game are populous in expert mode of the treacherous tower Mm -hmm. and so they're doing tons and tons and tons of damage and you really have to do a lot of trial and error to figure out what is the right combination of items and things to be using on each floor in a similar way to how trial of the sword works in breath of the wild right for sure like my experience with trial of the sword is i fail at that like several times multiple times right mm-hmm. i'll go in and i'll try and do something and it does not work and i'll get bounced all the way back to the beginning and then i'll think about it on the next playthrough of like okay once i get to this room this is what i've got to do i've got to try this this is going to help me beat this room and and i really like that it has a healthy frustration to it i think mm-hmm. it it has like a very fun and challenging tension that is uh i mean i said this uh, last week or the week before but it's like all the reasons that combat in this game is fun is distilled down into that 50 floor treacherous tower experience and i'm always very excited to do it so yeah and then aside from that i mean just even doing those first two floors um i have a lot of rupees now (laughs) oh yeah yeah. once you go in the tower you're done worrying i i ended this game with nine 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 rupees Um, yeah yeah 
Yep. <laughs> it's yeah, you really just you are flush with cash by the end of doing these. So uh, if you're listening to this and you're trying to figure out what the most efficient way to grind rupees is, then treacherous tower, even even like intermediate treacherous yeah like, you get like 350 or 400 rupees after beating it yeah like if you if you feel like you don't have the patience to do the 50 floor and it gives you rupees at intervals throughout the yeah. 50 floor challenge yeah. right so you get a ton in there but you know even if you just come up with like a speed run technique for that intermediate floor then i mean yeah that's the way to do it <laughs> Yeah. Oh, the one thing I didn't mention on my Bluey Trails was I got the fourth bottle from the Great Fairy uh, Fountain in Low Rule, so okay. I donated that biatch three thousand rupees. Uh, that was a lot of rupees. But now you have four bottles. Now I have four bottles. Hooray, Max! You were gonna say something? Yeah. Uh, oh yeah. Um. So this game has a lot of depth and nuance to its combat system. Uh, more so than almost any other Zelda game, I would say. Uh, I would totally agree with that. And the Treacherous Tower or Tower of Treachery or whatever is like the only place where you can actually really dig your teeth into that. Um, like the game is too easy, right? Like it has all this depth and you don't need to care about or pay attention to the depth because you can just power through every situation with anything. Even sort of on hero mode, like you can kind of just power through stuff. Uh, I agree. I agree. The Treacherous Tower shines because the combat system in this game is awesome, and the items are awesome, and the enemy design is awesome, and this is the only place where any of that stuff matters. <laughs> uh, right? So I, I love the Treacherous Tower. Yeah. Cool. I Yeah, definitely um, hard agree and would encourage anybody who, if you're listening to this and you enjoy the combat component of top-down Zelda games, like if that's one of the, the main hooks that you get into these four, then Treacherous Tower is for you. 100% go do it. It's a great, great time. And even, I mean, I, I typically go and do it and beat it and never come back to it, but I can see for a certain type of player there being a lot of fun in the the optimization of that. Right. Just like trying to figure out what is what is the best and quickest way, because it does time you. I mean, so you can you can kind of track your success and the amount of time in which it takes you to clear these things. Yeah. Um, so that that that's fun as well. Uh, but, yeah, this is definitely a very, very good experience for that kind of play. They could make a Hades style roguelike out of this treacherous tower in this game's combat system, and it would be awesome. Yeah, if it I mean, like if it expanded past just like because the rooms themselves are not complicated, uh, they're they're all basically just square rooms with nowhere to move. And the complexity just comes from what combination of enemies is mm. in the room. Yeah. Right. And how many there are. Yeah. But if it was really just like if it was turned into like this crazy dungeon layer, you know, where there was traversal that you had to do in addition to all those other things, then I mean, yeah, that that, that would be pretty insane. No doubt about it. But let's go ahead and move on to part five, which is Z-targeting, where we lock on to fascinating characters or enemies that we happen to cross. Max, I'll pass it to you first. I will pick Mother Mayamai. Ooh, no one's done that yet. Uh, oh, that's a good point. Yeah, I, I mean, I'll refrain from talking about what happens for you know when you collect all our kids or whatever, but um, I just find her kind of hilarious and interesting because she's an Octorok, right? And all our kids are Octoroks. We don't really have friendly Octoroks in like any other Zelda game. Um, 
and uh, I just think her design is fun, and she's got that weird like chorus music, almost acapella esque. Yeah. Um, you know, when you're visiting her, and she's got her little hat, and uh, for some reason, uh, oh, she does the thing. She does the Arctic thing where she sucks in your items polishes them up internally and spits them back out just like you can do with like rusted items in breath of the wild with octorox oh good call oh that's a good like, point that's, yeah that's what she's doing <laughs> so i just think she's a really fun uh weird side quest quest character for a zelda game i like mother Maya Maya a lot to me mm-hmm. she always felt like a character that popped in from another game but in a fun way you know yeah and it's funny, we have two friendly Octoroks in this game. The baseball Octorok and Mother Mai Mai. <laughs> Octoroks, they're our friends now. <laughs> and 100 children. Uh, oh my gosh. 100 children. Wait, are there, Hopefully they all grow up to be nice. Are there any evil Octoroks in this game? Yeah. Yeah, totally. Okay. Yeah, um, the they roam around close to the Eastern Palace. Oh yeah, yeah, right. They're all over the place. What am I talking about? yeah. yeah. <laughs> <laughs> in fairness you really don't see them too often outside of the eastern palace area and the tower of treachery so there yeah, you go that's yeah. fair yeah uh matt how about you you know i didn't run into too many enemies or uh any characters this week so i'm gonna choose an enemy and i'm gonna go with uh lionels in this game because they are just fire breathing monsters who are basically just like I don't, I don't even know what they're a combination of. They just look like giant lions that breathe fire and it's pretty metal. Yeah. Well, I mean, so, so these Lionels used to scare me and then we got breath of the wild, which gave us the (laughs) utmost evolution of what a Lionel could be. Yeah. And I have nightmares about those guys. Yeah. These Lionels are probably one of the most terrifying enemies in top down games though. I would say. I mean, they 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 do a lot of damage, and their attacks are very hard to dodge, especially if you have multiples of them in a confined space. And they have range. That fire breath goes out very very far, yeah, and it goes for a long. Yeah, time. they like never stop. So, yeah. um, yeah, I had to use the upgraded fire rod, and I pushed them off of cliffs as often as I possibly could. Yep, that's the way to do it. Yep. Uh, my pick for this week is going to be, I'm calling him the Pengator King. Oh, I love that guy. <laughs> yes. <laughs> um, I want a plushie of this dude. Um, <laughs> that would make a great plushie. It would. Pengators are one of the funniest enemies in Zelda games to me. I, do, I don't even actually know if they appear anywhere outside of A Link to the Past and A Link Between Worlds, but... I don't know. Just like the the evil penguin vibe is the evil is, carnivorous penguin. Yeah, that wants exactly. To kill you they, by they, sliding into you. They give me a lot of chuckles. And the Pegator King has even got like mean eyebrows. Like baked he does. Into he his he model. looks like angry, right? <laughs> yeah. <laughs> <laughs> uh, have like, have you seen images of penguins' mouths and teeth? They're terrifying. Oh, terrifying. Penguins are horrifying creatures. <laughs> Thankfully, almost as horrifying as geese <laughs> thankfully we never see we never see pengator king's maw of fangs which i think <laughs> it's a blessing would, would make him slightly less of a good plushie but <laughs> <laughs> it's, uh, yeah no penguins are terrifying but uh, i don't know i just i, I love him too that's a, lot, a great pick a lot of personality and uh i think probably the biggest mid dungeon boss right definitely like, the largest like, yes he's huge he's gigantic big old penguin yeah, so he ate go. a lot of mackerel. <laughs> a lot of mackerel. There we have, we have Z targeting right. where everyone picked monsters. 
Yeah, yes, we did. Yes, well, that's because all... we didn't we didn't meet people this week. That's true. I don't. Uh, the only guy I met was um, the guy on Death Mountain who told me that the the guy who runs the mine was down there somewhere and he hopes he's okay. And then he ended up being the sage. The guy who gave you the bottle and you forgot about it. Yes. That guy. Oh, we did meet a person. Yeah. We, we didn't meet them, but we, we have not talked about Rosso. Rosso's cool, man. He, yeah. Rosso's cool. Here's my question. Is Rosso a Goron? <laughs> I don't think so. So I, I really don't think so. He, and he looks, he's human. He looks very intentionally Goron like, like he's got, he a looks Goron more mouth. And he looks like, more Goron than most people, but he's definitely a human. Yeah. I don't know. I have questions. I, I mean, they're basically like, okay, Link to the Past only had Hylians. There's no, none of the, none of the races from like other Zelda games. But we want to have a reference to Gorons anyway. So let's just make a Goron looking dude. Also, I love it how he was like, yeah, I've known I was a sage for a long time. Just didn't really feel like telling anybody. <laughs> like, okay, <laughs> neat. Good for you. How did you know that? Where did you get this information? Like, uh, tell me more, please. I'm interested. No, nah, I just want to go mine some more and throw some rocks around. All right, man. Yeah, you, simple you, pleasures. Rosso. Yeah, you, you do you. You do you, Rosso. Thank you. Rosso, he's a he's a true Chad. Real um, salt of the earth kind of guy. Really, really is. All right. Well, that brings us to the end of part five. Let's get into part six, which is our final thoughts where we let Matt wrap up this section of the game in as succinct a way as he can think to do. Sorry. Before we do that, I have some information about the development of this game that I think would be interesting to go over. Oh, you know what we're going to do right now? You know what we're going to do? Sacred Sacred Realms Rundown Extended? Yeah! (laughs) All right. (laughs) This is, man, we got Max pulling a Cody this week. So let's get into part six, which is for this week, Max's extra information. (laughs) Uh, Yeah, okay. So uh, for for whatever reason, we know more about some of the weird ins and outs of the development of how the ideas of this game came together than we do for most Zelda games. Simply because there's one interview where they went into a ton of detail, which is, you know, Iwata asks interview about this game. So the cast of of characters, um, you know, Ijeonuma was the producer, like he is for all Zelda games, but he was somewhat absent from a lot of this game. Um, So the important... Because he was working on Breath of the Wild? Because he was working on... uh, Well, the story stretches back to uh, pre-Skyward Sword. Um... But yeah, so development of this game began right after Spirit Tracks ended, which is like late 2009. Uh, I think Skyward Sword was 2011 or something like that. Yes. Um, It was 2011, can confirm. So, you know, Spirit Tracks ends, almost all of the Spirit Tracks team moves to work on Skyward Sword. Uh, They left a skeleton crew, three people behind. Uh, Hiromasa Shikata, who was the director... He was like a, a world designer, a level designer for like Ocarina of Time, Doors Mask, and The Wind Waker. Um, and the lead programmer was Shiro Mori. Uh, so they were like the two two guys left behind. And there's a third unnamed programmer. Um, but yeah, they basically spent like six months trying to figure out like what should our next handheld Zelda game be. Uh and they talk about, they relate this story about how after six months, they were like, we just got to do something. We're like, we don't have any great ideas. We got to pitch something. So they have this story about how they pitched a game to Shigeru Miyamoto uh, with the theme of communication. 
And apparently Miyamoto like ripped their pitch apart and like told them that their idea <laughs> sounded like it was an idea that was 20 years old. Uh, and just like they, they left apparently like totally demoralized, still just the skeleton crew. They had to essentially start over. Um, and so that they then were like just brainstorming, trying to see what would stick, prototyping their ideas as they came up. Uh, and one of them threw out the idea of the the wall merging mechanic. Um, and he didn't. This was Shikada, the director. He didn't even like it. Like he threw this out in like a brainstorm. And he was like, "Ugh, just like a one another throwaway idea in a brainstorm. I don't even like that one." But apparently, the other two on the team really liked it, and they insisted that they prototype it. So they made a prototype in like a day or two. Um, and so that's how they arrived at the wall merging mechanic. Like they were at this, this, the lowest point of their morale and they came up with this idea. Um, and then from there it took off, of course, right? Because it's a really good idea. Uh, you know, they made a prototype really quickly. They pitched the prototype. They got like positive feedback from Alnuma and Miyamoto. And then their project was disbanded. Uh, the whole team was canceled and moved to other projects. Um, they all went to work on Wii U launch titles because they needed like all hands on deck to make the Wii U like Nintendo land and stuff kind of launch titles. Which was uh, certainly one of the most prestigious assignments in all of video game history. Yeah. Wii U launch titles. Uh, <laughs> so you know, they basically, they, they relate this story about how they like, they really liked where they were, their idea, and they presented a 3DS with like a debug cart cartridge of their prototype to Shigeru Miyamoto and Aonuma with like a letter that was like, please don't forget our idea. And then they went and worked on other games for a year. So this was canceled for a year. Nobody looking at it or thinking about it. Um, and then after a year, Aonuma started development again um, but the two you know people originally the, the director and the elite programmer were still busy so he pulled in a third guy uh kintaro tominaga who was like assistant director for wind waker sub director for twilight princess i don't know the difference between assistant director and sub director in any case it was him and Alnuma for a while and this is the guy that i told you about last week who pitched making 50 dungeons and just making a game that was all dungeons. Uh, but yeah, long story short, like they started development again. Um, and the last interesting part of all this uh, was it was, uh, they did another pitch to Miyamoto with the 50 dungeons thing. Miyamoto tore it up again. Basically was like, this is a terrible pitch. Like go back to square one. Um, but brought up that he was like, maybe you should look to Link to the Past for inspiration. We should like, Link to the Past was good. Maybe there's something there. Uh, and then Aonuma was the one who personally decided to go model Link to the Past map. Um, like the producer of all of Zelda, just by himself, decided to just go do this and put it in the prototype they had. Um, so that's how they came up with this Link to the Past element of all this. Interesting. I I would love to hear the details of the communication-based pitch that got shot down originally. That sounds like, you know, I mean, if Miyamoto tore it to pieces, I'm sure he had good reasons for doing so. But uh, 
I would be fascinated to hear what the kernel of the idea was there. Yeah, same. Because this is something that fascinates me so much about Zelda development, right? Like Zelda, more so than a lot of other video game series that I've ever played, you can very clearly tell, and and even to the point where I think they basically market it this way with every new title, they will tell you this was our hook. This was like – this was the thing around – the nucleus of an idea around which we were basing this entire thing, you know? And uh, and it's different and unique for basically every Zelda game ever. Yep. Um, it, including the Capcom ones, right? Like it's just it's in it's endemic to the series. And I just like the the process of what it comes uh, the, the process of like how they distill those kernels of ideas down into like workable foundations for an entire game fascinates me and i i always wish that there was a little bit more information about like things that were pitched that never made it like we see a lot of abandoned concept art for things but we never hear a lot about oh we wanted to make this kind of zelda game and we didn't yeah like we don't we don't get to see all the the trials and tribulations they go through like trying to come up with a good like pitch and theme right uh and yeah. like, there's probably a ton of really interesting stuff. And they always talk about how they revisit old ideas later on, right? Like that's a common trend in the Zelda development history. So like a lot of these ideas that get shot down at one point in time come back later, uh, which is probably why they keep them secret. But <laughs> <laughs> right, right. That is that is the end of Max's extra development thoughts. Well, we always appreciate hearing them. No, it's super fascinating. This era of Zelda design is so interesting to me because there were so many things that were kind of taking place concurrently. Like the the period from, let's say, post-Twilight Princess to the launch of Breath of the Wild um, is just so interesting to me because there are so many things that kind of happen in there and the the ideas – on the part of the team of like what to make these games into seemed like it was in such flux during that time. Um, just really interesting to think about. Yeah, absolutely. It was definitely a turning point for the series, this era. Be- because you've got, you've got your, you've got Skyward Sword, you've got a link between worlds and you've got uh, breath of the wild development all happening within that span of time. And just just a lot you know well even outside of zelda this was just a huge time for nintendo with everything going on with the wii u and and the switch that was coming out and and all of the trajectory of just gaming in general it was such a time of change um that it's it's always interesting to hear about there are so many huge cool development stories from around the industry during especially that you know late 2010s to early um 2020s is there's just a lot there that was that was a period of evolution for gaming writ large without a doubt for sure cool all right well that brings us to the end of our ad hoc part six let's get into what is this week part seven where we let matt uh summarize this section of the game in as succinct a way as he can think to do take it away matt 
This section of the game brings us to one of the largest traversal areas we've had since we entered Low Rule. Uh, we get to go through uh, large parts of High Rule and Low Rule, um, and really dive into an exploration part of the game that feels very dungeon esque and challenges us in a combat way as well. Um, there's a lot of interesting things to find, uh, lots of my mys, lots of uh, interesting traversal mechanics to get used to. Um, Coming into the end of this section, uh, the main event is the Ice Palace, which really uh, drives us to a unique uh, hook for the series with uh, its unique mechanics of traversal and um, backtracking that works very well. Um, the dungeon culminating in a really excellent boss fight that uh, utilizes... Um, great mechanics as well as a feeling of franticness to uh, be an extremely enjoyable uh, boss fight and overall good dungeon that uh, we enjoyed. And uh, we are on to the last chunk of the mainline game where we have one more sage to find and we're, next week we'll tackle our final dungeon. Well done as always, Matt. That brings us to the end of the Sacred Realms rundown for this week. We are coming to the end of this game very quickly two more main episodes and then one recap episode crazy to think about always crazy when we get to the end of a season to look back and feel like we just started it like two weeks ago and that's exactly <laughs> how it feels no doubt uh it's been a really fun time to talk about it so far uh got a little bit more left to go before we wrap this thing up max thank you so much for coming back on the show tonight um been a really great double header for you a lot of really great stuff that we've kind of learned as per usual Really looking forward to catching back up with you again as we get into Tears of the Kingdom. Huzzah! Yeah. It's coming quick. It's not going to be long now. I can I can taste it. I can practically taste it. <laughs> going to be a good time. Um, but anyway, uh, hope that you're well, Max. And uh, as always, we look forward to having you back on the show sooner rather than later. Yeah, can't wait to be back. Awesome. You ready to get out of here, Matt? Let's do it. The lights have turned off in your courtyard, signaling that it is time to go to bed. Yeah, they auto turn off at 1130, leaving <laughs> Matt and I both in complete darkness. So that's great. <laughs> I guess that means it's time to go to bed. Um, if y'all enjoyed today's show and you'd like a little extra sacred realms in your life you can head over to patreon.com slash sacred realms pod and become a patron if you've got no rupees it's not a problem five star apple podcast reviews are a great free way to support us more reviews means that more people see our show and that makes us very happy hylians follow us on twitter and instagram at sacred realms pod for updates on the podcast and for behind the scenes action Sacred Realms will be back next Wednesday with our thoughts on A Link Between Worlds Chapter 10. We'd love for you to play along with us and to share your thoughts on our social channels. A Link Between Worlds can be played on the Nintendo 2DS and 3DS family of systems. But in the meantime, may your hearts be full, may your arrows never miss. We'll catch y'all next time. Sacred Realms is an independent podcast production, which is produced, edited, and mixed by me, Lyndon Willoughby. Our music comes from Zelda and Chill by Mikkel and is graciously provided to us by Mikkel in Game Chops Records. Zelda and Chill is available to stream on Spotify or to purchase directly from GameChops.com. Finally, our thanks go to Nintendo for creating such exceptional and innovative experiences.